Good morning. Um, the meeting will come to order. Welcome to November 29, 2023 meeting of the Budget and Finance Committee. I'm Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee. Uh, I'm joined by Supervisor uh, Asha Safai. Our clerk is Brent Halipa. I'd like to thank um, SFGov TV for broadcasting this meeting. Uh, Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder to those in attendance to please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices so as to not to interrupt our meetings. Uh, should you have any documents to be included as part of the uh, file, they should be submitted to myself, the clerk. Uh, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. When your item of interest comes up in public comment is called, please line up to speak on the west side of the chamber to your right, my left, along those curtains. Uh, alternatively, you may submit a public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee Clerk at brent.jalipa at sf gov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's 1, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And, and Madam Chair, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of December 5th, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And before we call item number one, I would like to just remind the public that we have budget and legislative analyst reports uh, for items five, one, five, and seven through 10 on today's agenda. And so for these items, we will have the department presentation first and we'll follow by the budget and legislative analyst report. Then we will take questions and then public comments. And with that, um, Mr. Clerk, I realize we will need to re-excuse Vice Chair Mendelman for today's uh, meeting, and I don't see any objection. Um, Vice Chair Mendelman is excused. And with that, let's call item number one. Yes, Madam Chair, item number one has an ordinance deappropriating 250,000 from general city responsibility and 20,000 from children, youth, and families, and reappropriating 270,000 to the Human Rights Commission for District 10 safe passages, uh, Hope SF trainings, violence prevention events, and to support District 10 neighborhoods most impacted by violence in fiscal year 2023 through 2024. Madam Chair. Thank you, and with that, I believe we have uh, Tracy here, yes. I, I was like, sorry, it took me a while to look for you. And legislator A for Supervisor Shamal Walton. Hi, Tracy Gallardo. Thank you uh, for having us today. Um, the funding before you is allocated for District 10 special projects. Um, it is in alignment with the District 10 safety plan that you can find on our website. Um, it was put together by District 10 Supervisor Walton to address the high rates of violence in District 10. <laughs> District 10, as you know, has the highest number of homicides, the highest number of youth in custody, and the highest number of families living in poverty. We have a number of interventions that interrupt the cycle of violence that have been recommended in our public safety plan that includes the voices and input of many of our District 10 residents and many of our uh, community partners and stakeholders. The proposed $270,000 in funding will be used for training and special violence prevention projects as listed in the ordinance in District um, Supervisorial District 10. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Supervisors. Nick Menard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. 
Item one is an ordinance that um, reappropriates $270,000 of funding uh, that was originally set aside for District 10 projects and places it in the Human Rights Commission um, for violence prevention training. We recommend approval. Thank you, and I don't, thank you so much for, I know that with items like this to get consensus and to gather um, community feedback, it's not an easy task. Um, and so with that, I don't have any questions. Uh, seeing no name on the roster, let's go to public comments on this item. Thank oh, you, ma'am. And uh, before we start, I would like to limit to public comment today into one minute. Okay. Heard, Madam Chair. Uh, we now invite members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on this item to line up to speak. Uh, and all speakers will have one minute, as the Chair stated, to speak for today's meeting. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. And with that, I would like to make the motion to move this item to full board with positive recommendation. Uh, a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward this ordinance to the full board with a positive recommendation. Member Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes. Would the Vice Chair Mandelman excused? Thank you, and the motion, pa uh, the motion passes. Um, please call item number two. Yes, item number two is an ordinance amending the police code to waive initial license and filing fees through June 30th, 2025 for certain entertainment permits for former holders of Just Add Music Permits, waive initial license and filing fees for entertainment permits for applicants who are newly eligible to apply for those permits due to recent planning code amendments, eliminate mass ball uh, permits, require applicants for arcade and ancillary use, billiard and pool table place of entertainment, limited live performance, fixed place outdoor, amplified sound, and extended hours premises permits to submit a new permit application and filing fee if their existing application has not been granted, conditionally granted, or denied within 12 months of its submission. Authorize the Entertainment Commission Director to issue billiard and pool table permits without a hearing and provide that such permits may be suspended or revoked under the standards and procedures that apply to other entertainment permits except exempt schools from the requirement to obtain a place of entertainment permit, limited live performance permit, or fixed place outdoor amplified sound permit for any activities that occur on school premises in the regular course of school operations, eliminate the requirement that applicants for place of entertainment permits disclose with their permit application criminal history information regarding certain individuals connected with the applicant business narrow the categories of new criminal charges, complaints, or indictments brought against a place of entertainment permittee or its employees or agents that the permittee must report uh, to only those charges, complaints, or indictments that could be grounds for suspension of the permit. Allow the director of the Entertainment Commission to require an applicant for a l limited live performance permit to propose a security plan if necessary to protect the safety of persons and property uh, or provide for the orderly dispersal of persons and traffic to make compliance with the security plan uh, a condition of the permit and to require revisions to the security plan as necessary and clarify that a single one-time outdoor amplified sound permit may extend across multiple consecutive or non-consecutive 24-hour periods. Madam Chair. Thank you. Wow, thank you so much for that introduction. Hello, supervisors. My name is Maggie Weiland, and I'm the director of the San Francisco Entertainment Commission. I'm joined here today by my colleague, Ben Van Houten, from the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. 
We're here to brief you on this police code reform legislation. Uh, this has been in the works for a few months. It was introduced by the mayor um, this summer, and it emerged from the city administrator and entertainment commission's goals to improve the customer experience uh, process for our small businesses here in San Francisco, particularly those that offer entertainment and nightlife experiences to our residents and to visitors, and really to further simplify business processes and improve the regulatory co uh, coordination behind all of those processes. So um, that introduction went into a lot of nuance. We're here to break down any questions that you might have. Ben will be going over a lot of that in his uh, presentation here in a moment, but wanted to just provide a little bit more background on this legislation and why it's important. As you know, our small businesses have been struggling during the pandemic. Uh, they were the first to close um, from the health order. They were the last to open. Uh, ben and I continue to work with our communities and constituents for ways to further simplify these processes and make it affordable to offer entertainment offerings to patrons. Uh, this legislation would make it so that all of the businesses that were able to use our Just Add Music permit during the pandemic will be able to transfer those operations if they're eligible to continue using their outdoor space without an additional fee to apply for the application with our office or the initial license fee. So that's the bread and butter of this, but with Within this package, we were able to work in police code reforms that were long overdue. Our police code is very antiquated, so some of the examples I just heard in that intro, masked ball, for example, something we can do away with because that's something we can permit with our one-time event permits, for example. Um, this legislation would implement a variety of other streamlining measures and technical fixes to improve our entertainment permitting schemes. Um, and this legislation really complements the pending small business uh, reform that uh, Director Tang has been working on uh, with the Office of Small Business to improve the planning code. So again, this is police code reform and we're hoping that it complements very nicely with the pol uh, planning code reform legislation that was heard at land use on Monday of this week. Uh, so without further ado, I'll bring up Ben and I'm here to help answer any questions you might have. Great, thank you, Maggie. Good morning, Chair Chan, uh, uh, Member Safai. Um, it, apologies uh, to the clerk for that incredibly long title that I think accurately uh, summarized the variety of reforms in this package. As Maggie mentioned, uh, we are hoping to uh, waive entertainment permit application fees and initial license fees for businesses that are transitioning from the pandemic Just Add Music program uh, to an ongoing brick and mortar entertainment permit so that they can continue offering outdoor entertainment and amplified sound. Um, we are also hoping to waive entertainment permit application and initial license fees for existing businesses that are newly able to apply for entertainment permits due to uh, zoning changes. So most recently, there were some zoning changes in SOMA that allowed some longstanding businesses to now apply for entertainment permits. Um, in both of these categories, businesses that are eligible for first year free can pursue that program. But with respect to existing businesses, uh, these uh, fee waivers would provide relief to uh, continue to offer entertainment or expand opportunities for entertainment and for our local uh, artists and entertainers. 
Um, moving on to the second slide, and again, as Maggie said, happy to jump into any of this stuff in more detail. Uh, we are also hoping to eliminate referrals in a couple of different cases, and we've spoken with uh, these departments, building inspection and public health, uh, about streamlining referrals in order to save uh, applicants time and money uh, in the place of entertainment permit application context, where a premises has had a place of entertainment permit to, uh, to no longer need a referral uh, to the Department of Building Inspection, and then for the fixed place amplified sound permit to no longer require a referral to the Department of Public Health. Um, we are also proposing to remove the mandatory hearing requirement for a billiard parlor permit. Such a hearing could still be required if warranted, but, um, but it would no longer be a mandatory uh, requirement. Additionally, uh, proposing to delete and reform a variety of pieces of the police code, as Maggie mentioned, um, uh, deleting some outdated operating standards around arcades that I think date back to arcade panic um, several decades ago, uh, removing entertainment permit language that for permits that no longer are issued, and, um, and really providing some clarity around um, security plan requirements, application fee requirements, um, and the relationship between entertainment permitting and school activities. Again, just really trying to uh, tighten up and, and make this code as simple as possible. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to date myself here, but, you know, as someone who grew up in Chinatown, North Beach, you know, Broadway was not easy and in terms of public safety and with entertainment and, like, nightlife. Um, but even now as a district supervisor, you know, when I venture out younger days to the Richmond, there, were, there is still some bars, you know, along Gary, but definitely formerly, like, family is a pool hall. Uh, on on Gary Boulevard and by Masonic, um, uh, and just kind of uh, thinking about trying to understand. I totally understand, you know, that some of our uh, is antiquated police code, um, you know, and but to delete, for example, the mandated staffing and infrastructure, like just help me understand though you know in terms of how do we ensure public safety I, I do see that you know one of the one of it is that you're you're saying instead of mandating we're saying that the entertainment commission can uh, request for a security plan uh, if they think if they deem necessary help me understand then what is the threshold what is the protocol and strategy like you know, some of our entertainment commissioners been around for a long time, so like I, they they know the cultures, they know the nightlife. Not that some of them, for the new, you know, recently appointed, do not. It's just that there's. How do we make sure that it's consistent uh, in Absolutely. terms of standard? Absolutely. Hi, Chair Chan. I'm happy to help answer. So um, the Entertainment Commission has the power and authority from the staff side. So if there are issues at any particular place that we permit and regulate, or if, say, it's a place that is offering um, entertainment or other forms of entertainment like pool table or arcade uh, that doesn't have a permit, we can require them to get a permit. If folks already have the permit and they're operating out of compliance, my staff works diligently to bring them into compliance quickly. So we have tools in our toolbox to do that administratively. Um, but anytime we need to escalate an issue to the Entertainment Commission, we do so promptly. We meet twice a month and so if 
anything occurs, we can hold a hearing to amend a security plan. Um, if it requires some kind of public input, that's the best way to do it. Another way to do it very quickly is for me to issue a director's order requiring a revised security plan be submitted by anybody that we regulate. So that is the fastest tool that we can use to have folks come into compliance. So if one of the places that you're mentioning is out of control in any way, we either hear about it through 311 or our partners at the police department, we work quickly to bring them into compliance. So the threshold is really complaint driven? It's complaint driven. However, we do make an effort to go and visit every single one of the businesses that we regulate on an annual basis. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think, so then uh, besides security mm -hmm. of the persons, here's you're also eliminating the referral for to the Department of Building Inspection mm -hmm. for the premise. Um, you know, and I think typically that in the past, public safety, of course, not just about physical conflicts or anything like that or interaction, but also ensuring fire safety during Absolutely. the performance, yeah. um, you know, crowd yes. capacity, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that, you know, exits are not blocked. And yep. that's oftentimes through the conversation with DBI or the Department of, uh, and Building Inspection and sometimes the fire department. How do we, how do we ensure of that um, with, if, if there's no more referral? So this is really the intention behind this is for places of entertainment that have held the permit in the past year. So they should be in compliance. However, we work very closely with the fire department and we have a great relationship with DBI whose director agreed with eliminating this referral because they felt that it was um, repetitive because of the fact that these businesses had proven compliance within the year. Could you elaborate a little bit more about the reform of like the technical pieces of the permitting process? Which pieces? There's several. In your, yeah. no, uh, that's what I meant to oh, elaborate. Okay. Sure, and Ben, do you wanna help? He has a substantive list. Yeah, so that, that, that bullet reforms several technical pieces of the process refers to um, removing a requirement that permit applicants provide uh, detailed criminal history information that felt mm -hmm. like an outdated part of the application process, uh, removing the language around masked ball permits, which is not a permit that's I issued see. anymore, uh, confirming that the commission may require an applicant for a limited live performance permit to submit a security plan. As, as Maggie discussed, this actually uh, empowers the Entertainment Commission to and clarifies the power of the commission to require a security plan for this type of permit. Where, that's right, where one wasn't required uh, before. Um, establishing a, a clarity around the need to refile an application fee where there's been over a year of inactivity by the permit holder, and then also uh, exempting school activities in the regular course of school operations from requiring an entertainment permit so that morning announcements over a PA don't require an amplified sound permit from the Entertainment Committee. Thank you. Then with that, uh, I do understand in the past why we say we would like for the for the place of entertainment permits to disclose the permit application criminal history information regarding certain individuals connected with the application uh, with applicant bis uh, business. Can you elaborate the intent why you're now eliminating it? Or, or you can also I will actually appreciate how about walk us through why it was there to begin with. And then why now the decision Goodness. to think that we should eliminate it? 
So for background, so we've been in office for 20 years. We're just approaching our 20th anniversary in the next month. Uh, prior to the creation of the Entertainment Commission, these pieces of police code uh, were governed by the police department who issued these permits and licenses. And so we have since taken that authority on in the past 20 years. And so we inherited that piece of code. Um, and essentially, we are wanting to modernize our our code because we don't think that as a civilian agency we should be holding on to people's criminal histories because we're um, we receive public records requests those could go out to members of the public that's why we partner so strongly with the police department so when we receive an application it gets sent immediately to the police department and other referral agencies and the permit officers of each of the district stations are then in charge of doing those background checks themselves um, as the agency that can look at those documents and be able to keep them more private. Um, sure, but it's explain the, the intent of why eliminating it now. Like I, I get that you use the word modernizing, but it was, I, I think, kind of referencing back to the history of entertainment commission, but also uh, entertainment venues and, and nightlife in San Francisco and the history of it. Uh, and to try to understand that the reason being mm -hmm. behind, at least the way I learned it and yeah. interpreted it, mm -hmm. was, you know, we, we recognize that nightlife at times come with activities that may not be uh, safe uh, for the neighborhood. Right. And it's the reason why that we want a screening of those individuals that may want to have mm -hmm. nightlife and permits at those hours right. and screening through them and to mm -hmm. be allowing the police department to have at least on alert, right? Not necessarily denying, but just be able to right. on alert who's involved and what. Right. Um, and again, this is back in the day where there are like gangs and different, you know, yeah. activities involving during those hours and in these venues. I'm not saying that they are now, I'm just saying that was the history. And then now the thinking is to eliminate this, could, if you could elaborate, like the decision-making process and what what makes you bring to this right. conclusion? Well, this is, again, this is one of the pieces that's a part of the city administrator's goals as a part of our REAP, as a part of the Entertainment Commission's goals to improve our racial equity processes, really trying to modernize our code so that we as a civilian agency are no longer collecting the data that really should be collected by and reviewed by the law enforcement agency involved in the permit referral process. So it doesn't cut us out completely. It still makes it so that every time we receive an application, it is reviewed by the police department and they're able to do a background check on the business owner or manager. So there is still the process, just not as a requirement? It's still a requir requirement every single time that they submit it through the, the police department. Right, so right now. But you're eliminating that process we're eliminating our role of reviewing it so the police department has the ability to still run background checks as they did in the past because so, they have the tools to do so. So how does that work then? So when they submit this application to you yep. and you still send it to the police? Right away, yep. It's and a part of our referral package that goes out to all of the agencies, including the police department, the planning department, fire department, Department of Building Inspection, and the health department. And so it's, so I see. So are, 
sorry, I'm just trying to get understanding of this yeah. very technical part. When you say eliminating the requirement that applicants uh, for for this, uh, that that will be for screening yeah. for the criminal history. What you're saying is just that the Entertainment Commission is not doing it, but the police That's department right. is. That's right. So we are not collecting that information or housing it within our civilian agency. I see. But but it will still be referred. That's or at right. least the police department have access to Yes, it. every single one of our applications down to our one-time event permits are sent to the police department. Thank you. Sup Supervisor Safai. Yeah, I, th that was some of my line of questioning. I'm trying to find in the legislation where you speak specifically to eliminating the requirement for criminal history regarding uh, individuals connected with the applicant business. Can you point that? Point to me where that language is. Yes, Ben is looking for it. You probably know why I'm asking that question, Director, because we've had yes. we've had some bad yeah. operators in our district, and right. in both cases, we've had one a death, and in the other, we've had multiple shootings. And I think some of these operators had a, have had bad histories in the past, so. Totally I just, understand. I, I just, I just want to make sure it's clear. What you said to me makes sense. Yep. That the police are doing their job, mm -hmm. and I just want to make sure that you still have the ability. Same authorities. To, yeah, yeah, you still have the same authority, but you also have the ability to understand, like it, that, that the police are are giving you their recommendation based on reviewing the applicant's criminal history. Yes, that's right. So this is in ten sixty point three. Okay. Application for permit, place for permit, okay. We okay. do so also some, work. There's some language yeah. that's struck here. Okay. Right? For yep. persons whose disclosure required under Section B, all criminal charges, complaints, and indictments in the preceding 10 years, which result in a conviction. So all that's struck. Mm -hmm. So what is in place? What's in place then? So um, uh, that, that section specifies what is required to be submitted on the application for the entertainment permit. I got it. So we're, yeah, so we're striking out that that no longer needs to be submitted on the entertainment permit application form. It, it does that, striking well, that and, well, and... Wouldn't it be better if you left it there and said this information now will be submitted to the police department? I, I mean, I, I think the, the intent was to because the police department has access to and conducts evaluations on this information and the goal of removing the collection of this information from a civilian agency and from being housed in a civilian agency, that, that in essence this cuts out a, a, a middleman that doesn't, that, that doesn't really have a role in the, and, and, from, a, and from, a, you know, from a data management liability perspective, it just seemed Entertainment Commission doesn't need to hold this information. No, no, I understand. Yeah, I yeah. understand the argument. I understand what you're saying. You don't yeah. want to be the depository of criminal information. You want to hold on. People can sunshine you. That's personal information. But what I what I don't like, respectfully, is that there's not something in place that says like it would be easy to say an application. I mean, I think it would be an application replacement of entertainment permit shall specify the following and be signed under penalty of perjury and direct it immediately to the police department so that you're not, because I get it that you're saying that all of them are 
reviewed on their criminal background, but this is very specific. I mean, this talks about all the different penal codes, assault and battery, felony assault, sex offenders, you know, loitering. There's all different types of things that were very specific, and I'm sure there were reasons for that. And it goes back 10 years. I don't know if the criminal background check does that for 10 years. So I don't know if you guys are, are open to the idea, but it might be... Um, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that's easy, but it could say you still submit the information and and send and then it, that information is sent to the police department. Um, yeah, and, and I agree. I think I concur with the sentiment. And, and, and the reason I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but no, you, please. Uh, director, you know why I'm saying that because I mean, literally, we don't have as many club operators in our district, but the two main places that we've had, we've had some pretty horrific outcomes. Uh, and so it, it just gives me, yeah. it gives me some reservation to say, we're going to remove that. And I hear what you're saying yeah. and I trust you that the police department is still doing that, but it still to me would, I would feel a little better if it said explicitly, you have to submit this information, but it's going to be directed straight to the police department. If that is the route that the two of you are wanting to go, I would say just not even removing this section at all would give you that solve because the next piece of police code um, speaks to who we refer things to. Oh, is there something in there that I missed? Yeah, and that's okay because we're not that? changing that piece. So oh, where, that just... Is that in this, is in this as well? It's not in the... Yeah, sorry. It's not in the legislation. It's just in the code, in the code. for how we refer applications. Oh, okay. So it, it is a requirement that we submit every application to the police department. Oh. That's not going away. Right. But right. this would no longer be part of the application. That's right, so that we don't collect that right. information. So that's the argument I'm, I'm making. And, you know, this was also guidance from our city attorney's office. And we work very closely with our city attorney code enforcement um, as well on any, any of these cases, specifically the ones that you were discussing as well. Anytime we have um, a business who we have any concerns about, we're able to use internal systems through the city attorney's office, through our police department, so that the information stays protected and it's not sun sunshineable. So this was just a way to further um, codify that process that we are doing. But so do you have reservation leaving it in? Um, my only reservations is that it feels really antiquated. Um, it feels very pre-2020, in my opinion. <laughs> it does. Um, and I, I have seen other um, regulatory agencies moving to remove these pieces of code so that the police department has sole responsibility for doing this review in-house. If you want to keep this here, um, the only concern really is just... Um, our continued, you know, sunshine requests that may come in for folks. <laughs> Having that kind of data has never been something that the city attorney's office wants us to have. So this was just an opportunity to to modernize. Can, I'm going to ask the city attorney a question sure. through the through the chair. Is there a way for the entertainment commission to collect this information? And I understand she referenced. Uh, an area of the code that says they have to submit it. Is there a way for them not to be the holder of the information, just receive it, send it to the police department, and then it's protected under and, and no longer sunshineable? So, I mean, I think there's always a risk if they're collecting the information. Mm -hmm. um, 
that you know that having data always presents a little bit of a risk. This is technically not sunshineable information. It's private information. So I think what um, what they're speaking to is just the inherent like risk in holding the information at all. Um, it, application materials are generally public, so it requires mm -hmm. a level of screening. And I'm sure the Entertainment Commission is very vigilant about, about protecting that information, but um, this is extremely sensitive information and there's always a risk when you collect it. I think if it weren't for because of the police department has consistently talked about the administrative burden that they've been suffering and that they're mm -hmm. short staff mm -hmm. <laughs> and that they constantly talked about the need of civilian lives, like some of the work that requires them to do, including a lot of administrative work. And right. this I would consider administrative work to ask the police department to take on to additionally screen because I think the well, difference they're doing it anyways it yeah says they're doing well, it anyway. but then if they are submitting the re if they're requiring them to submit a history if you have this you know offenses like which is the list of them and that you have to submit that documents if it related individuals and you sub you, you, you know basically the reason it's I'm like smiling is because if they have the information then they've submitted it right so yeah. then there's something they have to review so if they've submitted then they're kind of disqualified one, one well, are, they disqual <laughs> are they disqualified or just a consideration I don't think that you're on an immediate term for disqual disqualification no so one other thing I should point out that might be helpful to you all is that um, criminal history is is not an allowable basis for the right. Entertainment Commission to deny a place right. of entertainment permit. Oh. Right. Yeah. So it's just one for like just that you are in the on the in the know. Like I don't think that this is a again right. So what I'm trying to say is that you know this is a way that for the the administrative burden on the Entertainment Commission to flag it for the police department that such individual may or may not be involving in this venue and permit, and then the police department then will have the uh, additional tools however way they, they do their tracking within, within the department to determine how they want to. Yeah, the, it, isn't the police department, they're the ones that review this information and make the recommendation to you. And they, they can say, based on this history, we don't feel. They would more so let us know if they had concerns, mm. um, which happens very rarely. Supervisor, I would say 99% of the time when issues arise, it's after folks have been in operation. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. Okay. So what's what area of the code do you all that in terms of sending the information? Um, I mean, so if that you don't have it off the top of your head, that's fine. It's going to be, I believe, in several pieces of code as a mm. part of the application process. So we have repetitive pieces of code for each of our brick and mortar permits for the application process. Got it. Okay. So you're okay with the way it is, Chair? That what you're saying? You mean as uh, as amended, which is eliminating the um, record? I think uh, at the end of the day is that um, you know something that we have uh, right now, uh, you know, as a tool, um, and I don't see the police department here uh, voicing their concern and then being against this. So my assumption is there's an agreement with the police departments that this is this makes sense for them as well. It's not additional burden <laughs> back right. onto them, you know, for making sure that we the nightlife safety safety in general um, 
So I, I think I'm fine with that. I just really wanted to drill down and understanding the process yeah. and what exactly we're eliminating so that uh, it's, it's clear to us. But the fact that knowing is nonetheless the police still have access, is still turning over to them, then that's on the police to determine yeah. how they want to get involved. And I, I, I'm fine with that. And how do you feel? Um, I, had a, I have a, a, one more question. Of course. So the second bullet says, narrow the categories of new criminal charges, complaints, and indictments against. So is, where is that? Yeah, I believe that uh, refers back to Oh, I believe that's referring to that by removing the this this laundry list chunk in 1060.3, the in other sections related to the information that is required to be reported back mm -hmm. uh, to the commission, that where there is uh, where there are charges, where there is background information from you know years past that is collected here. Uh, that those are no longer referenced in the in the information that a person needs to report back after they start an operation. I feel like that might not have might not have made sense, but um. no, I mean sometimes there's areas of the code that they don't write in because it's already there and it's not referenced. I'm only reading the summary and it says narrow the categories of new criminal charges, complaints, and indictments brought against the place of entertainment permit or its employees or agents that they must report to only those charges, complaints, and indictments that could be grounds for suspension of the permit. That's, so I, I, I didn't know what that's that right. Was. So that's in 1060.30 on, on page 22 of the legislation. And that is on page 22. Yeah. So, oh, okay. Got it. So oh. by, and, and again, because we are proposing 22. to strike. Did you section, say 22? Uh, yes. Okay. I only have 16 pages. Uh, the substitute legislation. Oh, <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. We only have 16, but yeah. Sorry. Oh, here we go. Uyaka. So by so by <laughs> removing by proposing to remove those sections of 1060.3 yes. on the application form front, and now um, you're saying these are the only ones that are required. Yeah, I mean, we we have to delete because it's a cross reference to a section we're proposing to delete. We we have to delete the cross reference and re just replacing it with. So I I I don't know that I consider that narrowing so much as just clarifying exactly you know what what the intent is to, to, to restating the information that needs to be reported. Oh, okay. It says, I'll provide written notice within 30 days of filings. Any charge claim or indictments conducted by the permit that could constitute grounds on section, oh, 1060.2. So I wonder what that means. Ten, uh, that could constitute. And oh. so 1060.20.3 has its own, uh, its own. Hmm. I change that. Point three. 
and 1060.20.3 is not included in this because we are not proposing to change it. Okay. All righty. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. So are we feeling like we're ready to approve this today? I mean, listen, I, I went through a very similar process in, in, in my district, you know, five years ago about reducing the fees, noticing, making business and entertainment as easy as possible as what we could. Um, so I'm very much in favor of the intent of what this legislation is about. I feel very, very good about it. I just had the questions on notification on criminal background, but I, you've answered those today. I think it's good to know that, you know, the police department still has to review all the applications. That's part of the process. And if they have any flags in those 1% of the cases, they let you know, and that gets more scrutiny. And as you point out, unfortunately, uh, the problems arise once permits are there. And that's usually bad managers and bad operators, and we've done everything we can to control for that. So I, I, feel, I feel good, Chair, I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that for me, it's more like we do have the existing tool and language in the events that we feel like it's not working or that according to data, according to what entertainment uh, commission as well as police department report back, I, I think I would really appreciate that, you know, perhaps from, you know, uh, one year from the passage of the, from, from this legislation, you could report back along with the police department to say, hey, you know, this is really working for us. Like this actually, it goes well. And then, but then to actually have an honest conversation with us as well to say, you know what, we tried this for one year, as it turns out, we probably should have have more information. Let's revert back to this, this specific clause is what I'm looking for, is the elimination of the requirements of criminal history for the individuals involving in these venues. That's all I'm looking for. And then in the events that we think that we see that there is increasing public safety concerns, you know, then let's, let's, I want a commitment from the Entertainment Commission and the police departments that we will revisit this before it gets out of hand. Okay. Thank you. Uh, with that, uh, let's go to public comment on this item. Yes, Madam Chair, we now invite members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on this ordinance and um, line up along the windows to the right. Madam Chair, it appears we have no speakers. Thank you. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. Um, with all those uh, questions and answered, uh, I would like to move this item to full board with recommendation. Um, and with that, a, a roll call, please. And on oh, that motion. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Supervisor Bef Safai. Before we vote, I just, I just want to thank the Entertainment Commission again, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, and the city administrator for putting together this comprehensive piece of legislation. I know it was a lot of work. I think it's going to have significant impact. I think it's gonna make it easier, particularly given the, the very difficult times we've gone through in the city over the last few years, uh, coming out of COVID and still struggling econom uh, economically. And so many small businesses, and we hear about it on a daily basis, are, are closing in our city. Um, so this is really important. So I really appreciate it, appreciate the hard work, and would like to be added as a co-sponsor. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. And with that, let's finish the roll call. Yes. And on the motion to forward this ordinance to the full board with a positive recommendation and noting member Safai's co-sponsorship. Uh, member Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes.
And with that, please call item number three. Item number three is a resolution retroactively authorizing the Office of the District Attorney to accept and expend a grant in the amount of approximately 312000 from the California Department of Insurance for the Automobile Insurance Fraud Program for the grant period of July 1st, 2023 through June 30th, 2024. Madam Chair. Thank you, and uh, we have the District Attorney's Office here. Yes, good morning. Uh, thank you to the committee and to the chair for your time um, and the opportunity to address you this morning. My name is Tina Nunzober. I am the managing attorney for the DA's Economic Crimes Unit. Every year, the DA's office applies for and receives a grant from the California Department of Insurance for the prosecution of auto insurance fraud. This grant covers a portion of one DA investigator's salary and a portion of the salaries for three ADAs. One of our grant requirements is that we obtain this resolution from the board. Um, these cases are very important as we are all required by law to insure our cars, and I'm sure we've all noticed and seen that our premiums have risen over the years, and this is partly due to insurance fraud. Um, further, some insurance fraud schemes endanger public safety. Schemes such as staged accidents in which um, innocent civilians and innocent um, people can be harmed and hurt, while others cause financial harm to consumers, things like predatory towing or auto repair um, shops that have schemes where they use low-quality replacement parts and charge for brand-new parts. In the current fiscal year, from July 1st up to today's date, the DA's office has received approximately 85 case referrals for auto fraud. Last fiscal year, we received close to 200 referrals. Um, each DA on my team carries a caseload of about 25 auto, auto fraud cases on average. And we're finding over the years that the cases, fraud cases are not only increasing in number, but they're increasing in complexity. So one of the things that this grant also covers, and which is very, very important, is training for my team as we strive to keep up with the ever-changing landscape as fraudsters are always a few steps ahead and we have to try to stay uh, current with our um, other colleagues throughout the state. And with that, I'm happy to answer any, any questions that the uh, committee may have. Thank you, and uh, this grant is retroactive, is that correct? Yes, it is. And, uh, sorry, why is that? Um, it's just that this is part of the process. We can go ahead and, and spend the money and accept the money um, because of the amount, but we're required by the California Department of Insurance to receive the resolution from the board. Yeah. And Sorry, and so why is it retroactive again? Um, we received the monies. Um, the grant process starts at the end of June. We, we submit our application, ah. and then we receive the notification about mid-September. And at that point, then we start the process to get the resolution. Understood. And then, um, so does that mean that you've been spending it already, or uh, and that we're just uh, retroactively and also reimburse you? being reimbursed for those time from um, um, I July have my, and my September. financial person here so being an attorney I'm not always good at the finance aspect of it we, we should not expect you to we just want you to make sure you prosecute the crimes yeah, absolutely. thank you good morning supervisors good morning. my name is Lorna Garrido I'm the grants and contracts manager in the DA's office uh, including included in our A&E packet we have a retroactive letter and basically it's just administrative in nature because this grant has been included in an annual appropriation um, or annual budget um, submission. So it's 
technically we do have the, ex the authority to, to ex accept and expand it, and we're only doing this process to meet the requirements of our funding agency that requires that we do a resolution separate. That is exactly the question that I, I the answer that I need. So it does mean that with this, and clearly it's not a large amount, but just I want to understand your protocol and process. So technically that it was part of your budget proposal right. for the fiscal year of 23-24, right. and that it, during the budget process approval, we already did Correct. approve your overall budget that's inclusive of this grant, Correct. except that we're independently doing this resolution so that you can meet your grant requirement. Correct. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I just, just the technicality, I just wanted to understand about the retroactivity, which I appreciate. Thank you. And let's go to public comments on this item. Yes, if there are any members of the public who wish to speak on this resolution matter, kindly line up now. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. And would like to move this item to full board with recommendation. And with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward to the full board with a positive recommendation. Member Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Manlin excused. Thank you. And the motion passes. And with that, let's go to item number four. Item number four is a resolution authorizing an agreement with the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure operating as the successor agency to the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency acting in its capacity as the legislative body of Community Facilities District Number 5, Mission Bay Maintenance District for the city to receive funding for its operation and maintenance of the Mission Bay Parks to authorize the Port and the Recreation and Park Department to coordinate the operation and maintenance, authorizing the termination of OCII's ground lease to the Mission Bay Parks and to authorize the Port Executive Director and the Recreation and Park Department General Manager to enter into amendments or modifications to the agreement that did not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the agreement or this resolution. Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, we have a support here. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Madam Chair, Supervisor, David Bopre, Deputy Director at the Port. I'm actually here representing uh, the Department of Real Estate. Uh, Andrico Penick, the Director, is out on jury duty. So myself and Antonio Guerrero will present. Antonio's from Recreation and Park Department. I also wanted to recognize Claudia Gorham, Gretchen Heckman, and Jim Morales. Claudia from the Department of Real Estate. Gretchen and Jim from the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure here to support me today. Uh, also just want to recognize the work and collaboration we had with uh, the City Attorney's Office, the Public Utilities Commission, and the Department of Public Works on this uh, matter. Uh, so briefly, we'll cover the uh, history of the Mission Bay Parks, talk a little bit about the Joint Community Facilities Agreement, the lease termination between OCII, the city and the port, and then future steps. I'm gonna cover the introductions and parks overview and Antonio will cover the items two through four. So this map illustrates all of the Mission Bay parks. Uh, we have two different categories. We have parks that will be transferring to the Recreation and Park Department and then parks that will be coming back to the port. An important thing to recognize with all of this is that when the redevelopment initially occurred for the Mission Bay area, it was always anticipated that these parks would come back to the city and to the port. The port has underlying lands and so did the city. There are certain uh, 
parks that have dual jurisdiction, city and port. So over the last 18 months, we've been working collaboratively with the various agencies to identify which parks would be managed by which agency. A lot of the thinking behind that was what would be easiest for the park users to understand how and who is managing the parks. So for the most part, all of the parks along the bay shoreline edge will be managed by the port, and those are port parks. And then all the remaining parks will be managed by recreation and parks departments. And again, that helps with both management of the system of parks and also for the users of the parks to understand which agency and entity is managing them. So a little bit of history about the redevelopment area. Uh, in 1998, the Mission Bay North and South Districts were formed and a ground lease for the development of the parks was issued. Uh, the Mission Bay pl plans called for the development of open space parks within, again, both Mission Bay North and South. As I mentioned before, the city and the port own the underlying land of where all these parks exist. The ground lease was originally to expire in 2046, and then the open spaces would transfer back to both the city and the port. However, with the dissolution of redevelopment, the state has required the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure to divest their lands as quickly as possible. And in 2015, the state of California approved the property management uh, plan and park management plan that created a timeline to terminate the leases between the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure and the port and the city. As a part of the Mission Bay plan, there was a community financing district established, CFD number five. That CFD district and the revenues generated by it will be used to maintain the parks. The CFD expires in 2044, which was when the parks were originally gonna come back to us. Those CFD funds can only be used in Mission Bay Park, so we've been working diligently with OCII, Rec and Park, and the port to identify how we um, track the funding for it to make certain that the investments only stay within Mission Bay. And OCII will continue to manage and distribute those CFD funds. And with that, I will turn it over to Antonio to cover the rest. Thank you. Thank you, David. Antonio Guerra, Director of Administration of Finance for the Recreation and Parks Department. I'll be talking about the Joint Community Facilities Agreement itself, and on your screen is a picture of Mariposa Park, one of the parks that will be coming to the Rec and Park Department. So this agreement has been approved by both Rec Park, OCI, and Port and their respective commissions. It details the agency responsible for each parcel, provides a scope of services, and a funding formula to divide CFD funds. OCII, as administrator, will review and approve the annual operations plan for Mission Bay, as well as an annual CFD budget. And as David mentioned uh, when looking at the map, RPD will be managing some uh, split parcels that are port property. A lot of community outreach has taken place over the past two years, uh, specifically the Mission Bay Citizens Advisory Committee. A lot of thanks go out to them. Um, and we've met with them with seven specific meetings from January 2022 to May 2023. And in fact, our operating teams meet monthly currently to talk about what goes on in the parks uh, and maintenance. Additionally, uh, two meetings of the Port North Northern and Southern Advisory Committee where um, this transfer plan was discussed, as well as the Recreation and Parks Open Space Advisory Committee where a site tour took place and there was a meeting on September 2023. Uh, the agencies, uh, respective agencies, 
the Rec Park Commission, the OCI Commission, and the Port Commission have approved this document and the transfer two times, a short-term agreement prior to July 1st, as well as this long-term agreement in front of the Board of Supervisors. And now specifically to the ground lease termination and also the picture on your screen shows the stagecoach green in between Mission Bay North and South Boulevard, which is a current interim use. So a Board of Supervisors resolution is required to terminate the ground lease in keeping with State of California requirements. The master developer of the area provided consent to terminate this ground lease on October 20th, and OCII will oversee the development of future parks within the Mission Bay system. Next steps, we will be coming with a second ordinance for a street vacation and transfer because currently uh, the city portion of Mission Bay is under public right of way. Um, and so this would transfer the non-port parcels to the Recreation Parks Department. Um, the Mission Bay Redevelopment Plan designated the parks as public right of way for public works to issue development permits all those years ago. So we're recommending that the board pass a resolution that will approve this joint facilities community agreement between OCI, Port, and Rec Park and terminate OCI's ground lease of completed Mission Bay parks. And with that and a look of the Channel Street Dog Park on our thank you slide, we're happy to take any questions. Thank you, and I think the question is the CFD funds and what is the projection of it or you currently actually have the CFD fund? So we currently have CFD through all the operations are going to be covered with CFD. Uh, the CFD lasts until 2044. Mm -hmm. Right now, I believe 23.6 acres have been developed. Uh, and I'm looking at the OCI team. Uh, by the end of 2024, an additional 10 acres will be opening Bayfront Park uh, along the waterfront, as well as a portion of Mission Creek. We do anticipate that we'll have to reevaluate the actual operations plan um, because right now, in past years with the amount of acreage the CFD was sufficient without using any fund balance to cover operations but the projections do look like there will be a need for the fund balance uh, that is sitting in CFD 5. So what is the projection? I mean I get it that's like the 10 acres that you're going to get released. I mean the fact that we're saying authorizing a ground lease termination which we're going to start official transitioning to rec park and port so I'm just trying to understand then I, I get it that we are actually well, we as Rec Park will receive the CFD funds to, make, you know, to continue the maintenance and to be able to do some of the work. So I'm just trying to understand what is the projection, and then will we actually end up seeing deficits that where then the general funds will have to come in to support that? That's an excellent question. We're concerned about that too. I think right now um, the latest projection showed a current deficit taking place, and by the way, these are still preliminary sometime around 2030, 2031, where with the amount of staff anticipated once you open up all these parks, then potentially not 100% of the expense would be covered. But that would, that would be a situation where OCII and their role of administrator would decide whether or not the staff that's currently on site uh, is needed, so. What is the projection of dollars? Of dollars, I don't have that information in front of me right now, I can tell you that there's three plus million dollars of a budget in the CFD mm -hmm. um, for the current year operations. Uh, a little more than two million of that is going to RPD with the rest going to the port and OCI for their work. Um, 
regarding the actual mellow roost projections out until 2044. I don't have that information in front of me. And the three, roughly $3 million projection of CFD funds split between Port and Rec and Part, that is for the 10 acres that currently exists and open? That's currently for the 23.6 acres. Oh, for the total 23.6 yeah. yeah. acre, understood. And then the, for right now we have 10 acres that's ready, but then about 23 acres that is 23.6 acres that is gonna be ready to open when? So I have, Gretchen, you might wanna come up just to make sure that I'm giving the right data, but I have that uh, we have 10 acres opening in 2024, Bayfront Park, and Mission Creek. 23.6 have already opened. So those are Mariposa, that's the rest of Mission Creek. Um, that is uh, some of the Mission Bay Commons, which is a little bit north of Chase Center. So that basically means most of the development has, will be have, uh, completed by 2024. There's some parcels that are next to the freeway. If you look at the map, Yeah, go ahead, David. Thank so, you. So we, uh, so we anticipate opening another 10 acres of open space uh, next year in 2024. That's about seven acres on Portlands and then three acres that would transfer to RPD. And then in addition to that, there'll be seven more acres that'll open up over the next five to seven years. Okay. And again, we don't anticipate a deficit in the CFD until approximately 2030. 2030. Yeah. Um, I, I totally, sorry, Supervisor Safai. I'm sorry, I, I brought this up in this committee a bunch of times. Can you put that screen back up on? Bayfront Park has literally been sitting fallow for years now. What, what's going on? And, and you guys are asking us for more opportunities to manage and maintain, and by the way, I think you've done a good job on Stagecoach Greens and Mission Bay, I mean Mission Bay Commons, you can't walk in them half the time because they're soggy because they get flooded, because I, I, I understand it's wetlands. But Bayfront Park, I mean, I actually think it's an embarrassment to our city. Every time the Warriors make it to the playoffs, they show it, they show an aerial view of it. I've asked in this chamber when the new director came in, I've asked the commissioners, what's going on? Well, good news is, is that Bayfront Park uh, should be opening up in January. It's about 90% <laughs> complete. Can we have a big celebration because it's been like, well, it's just crazy to me. It's we will have a big celebration. We're, we're all looking forward <laughs> to it opening. Uh, it has taken some time. Again, I'm with the port, but I'm familiar enough with the project that I could answer the question is, is that the delivery of parks is timed with the development. Yeah. And, and actually delivery of Bayfront Park is, is being delivered earlier than it was required by the, the Mission Bay project. So we're happy it's coming on board. It should be open in January and we'll have a big celebration. Well, my understanding was it was tied to the Chase Center and the Chase Center opened years ago. Actually, 50% um, of it was tied to the Chase Center and the other 50% was on future additional development down the road. And what we did is we accelerated it to deliver it all at once. It was delayed a bit uh, because of COVID we were hoping it would have been opened a little bit earlier or even by you know the end of this year, but my understanding is, is it should be open in January. So that's under your jurisdiction? Well, it's right I mean, now under- Based on this map. Under, yes, it's, it's, uh, the port 
owns the underlying land, but it is leased to the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure. I mean, it just seemed like it was kind of a contradiction. I mean, part of the Chase Center, which is phenomenal, it's a phenomenal arena, has been a tremendous benefit to that area, but part of the agreement was that you'd have open space along the waterfront, and, I mean, my family, my kids, we go down there, and you can't get in it, and it's just been fenced off for years. Just about a month. Well, actually, you may recall that in 2008, we used uh, general obligation bonds to improve the shoreline and actually open the path up, and the port a lot of, had a lot of the tenants removed from the area, so we could open it up to the public, and that, uh, that was open to the public in approximately 2009 and was remained open until they started construction on the park about a year ago. Okay, well, good. That's, that's great news. Thank you so much uh, for that update because it's just been a source of frustration for me every time OCII or Port or somebody comes in and asks for additional dollars. It's like, well, wait, what's going on with Bayfront Park? <laughs> We've been waiting for that for a while. So thank you. Great update. Well, I just just want to commend, you know, Mr. David Beaupre. I don't know if you remember, I was we go way back when I was A2 supervisor Sophie Max on land use, always know his work and have it's always good to have him having the institutional knowledge and memory about where we've been, uh, actually also long before Chase Center came along. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And um, I don't see any other questions that we have at the moment. I I just want to finish really that one thought about, you know, talking about the, you know, about roughly uh, seven acres that's opening up in 2024. You know, we don't see deficits until 2030. Uh, is the total 23 acres, 23.6, it's inclusive of the 10 acres that we just talked about, or is the 10 acres on top of the 23.6 acres? 10 acres is on top of the 23. When we're all done, there'll be about approximately 40 acres of open space within Mission Bay. Amazing, thank you so much. And with that, uh, let's go to public comment. Thank you and good to see you as well. We now invite members of the public to, uh, to line up if you wish to speak on this uh, resolution. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you, seeing no public comment. Public comment is now closed. And with that, um, let's, uh, I would like to move this item to full board with recommendation and would like a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward to the full board with positive recommendation, member Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. And just want to acknowledge Board President Peskin is here and so that we can continue to, to have the quorum and we will excuse Supervisor Safai until, until he returns to this committee and seeing no objection, he is excused. And with that, please call item number, let's call the next item. Yes, item number five is a resolution authorizing the Office of Contract Administration to enter into a third amendment to a contract between the city and county and Golden Gate Petroleum for the purchase of renewable diesel for all city departments, increasing the contract amount by approximately 18.7 million for a total not to exceed amount of approximately 86.7 million and extending the duration by five months from May 31st, 2024 for a total agreement term of June 1st, 2019 through October 31st, 2024 and to authorize the Office of Contract Administration to enter into amendments 
uh, or modifications to the contract prior to its final execution by all parties that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the contract or this resolution. Madam Chair. Thank you. And today we have um, Office of Contract Administration here. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Finance Committee. This is, I am Mark Farley from the Office of Contract Administration, uh, and we're here for a proposed amendment to amend the uh, contract for renewable diesel, uh, both to add funds and extend the timing. Um, this contract provides renewable diesel for our city's buses, trucks, cars, and, and equipment. Uh, this contract was awarded to Golden Gate Petroleum uh, via a competitive solicitation um, per the Administrative Code 21.1 back in December of 2018. Uh, its current not to exceed amount is 68 million, which, uh, and the contract is scheduled to end on May 31st, 2024. Uh, it's been amended two times prior. Um, the, the contract price for um, diesel is a, a markup or markdown on the uh, Opus daily average rack prices for renewable diesel uh, for the region of San Francisco. Uh, our, our major users on the contract will be uh, MTA, uh, the city's fleet division, the fire department, and, and public um, uh, PUC. Uh, for the contract expenditures, you'll notice that for the f first two full fiscal years, uh, we were doing about um, $11 million uh, per fiscal year, and that jumped in fiscal years 22 and 23, up to $17 million, and then nearly $19 million uh, the previous fiscal year. Currently, we're on a pace um, uh, for the same expenditures for as we had in 22, 23. Um, the average monthly spend here overall was 1.2 million, but those first two fiscal years, the average monthly spend was under a million dollars per month, and that jumped to nearly 1.5 million dollars per month um, in the um, previous two um, fiscal years, previous two full fiscal years. And then we're seeing, uh, again, this major increase was due to the instability in the oil pricing market, the oil, oil markets, um, which is very closely tied to gas and diesel prices. Um, so with this jump in uh, usage, um, we have insufficient balance to meet the city's needs through the current contract end date of May 31st, 2024. Um, so our proposed amendment is to increase the not to exceed by $18.7 million uh, to a roughly $86.7 million not to exceed amount, and then also to extend the duration uh, by five months uh, to October 31st of 2024. Uh, thank you. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer. Thank you. We'll have to be our report. Okay. Thank you. Item five, this is a resolution that approves a modification three to the city's contract with Golden Gate Petroleum. The modification increases the not to exceed amount from 68 to 86.7 million dollars and extends the term from May 2024 to October 2024. Uh, this will allow the city to um, have this contract end with its gasoline contract and do a larger procurement for fuel, uh, potentially for one contractor. We did review spending on this contract. Um, and do believe the increase in the not to exceed amount is reasonable. It's based on recent spending. That spending has increased due to increase in diesel prices, which we've independently confirmed. Um, and as we show on page six and seven of our report, the majority of these purchases are actually funded by enterprise departments. 77% is actually purchased by MTA. About 17.3% is funded by the general fund. We recommend approval of item five. Thank you. Um, 
this is, uh, well, I want to refer back to, there's a civil grand jury report specifically about fuel in, for, during disaster emergency, like fuel preparedness that whether the city is ready uh, in case of disaster and um, that, you know, we need to have fuel for our trucks to pave the road so that we can, you know, patches up and access to roads and emergencies and all that and wanted to understand the contingency of 20% here that we're looking at. Is that inclusive of that? <coughs> like fuel, you know, fuel preparedness that we need to have in case of emergency and disasters? Right. Um, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I, I can answer that question, I think. Um, uh, OCA Director, Sayla Jacarella. Um, so in the event, the contingency only takes into account normal spending. That said, if an emergency did occur during the term of this contract, obviously there would be expenditure balance available for that. But usually in an emergency, an emergency declaration is either issued, which gives us different sorts of procurement authority to procure whatever we want. And Chapter 21 also has emergency purchasing authority. So we would likely use that in, in the event of an emergency. Understood, and but it, I think the question I also have then, it's like with the projection of just how significantly increased that it's been, we can see, you know, from $11 million, now we're looking at $18 million annual budget for fuel and likely continue to increase, well, or it's just volatile. We cannot predict um, what that actually looked like. Um, so, but the contingency is based on at the $18 million spending as, as we currently have and it's the projection that we are going to continue to increase in our spending? Yes, that's correct. Um, and I also do want to note, we do have a secondary contractor for diesel fuel as we do with both of our fuel contracts. So, you know, there is also additional capacity there if we do run out. Um, and we do manage the balances, right? We do um, take a look at the balances. So if we need to come back to you before, uh, you know, before um, the end of the contract term, we certainly would to make sure there's sufficient balance. Thank you. And when you say uh, it's all inclusive of the emergency deliveries, are the emergency deliveries uh, based on just it, it's the delivery mean including the actual fuel deliveries or just saying that it's delivery service like shipping costs? Uh, the the fuel pricing, it's all inclusive essentially, includes uh, freight costs, at least on this contract. Um, I would note, um, just in terms of emergency deliveries, right, it's really dependent on what type of emergency occurs. Um, they, the, the fuel has to be transported, and so it's possible that even these vendors that we have on contract, even if we have contract capacity, could not deliver in the event of an emergency. So it's possible we may need to find other sources. Yeah, and well, on that then, what how do you define the emergency deliveries? What is the capacity that uh, will last us emergency for a day for the, all the city departments or what does that mean? Yeah, I don't, I certainly am no expert in this area. I think we can get back to you with um, the numbers. I think the departments, um, are, they generally keep um, a certain uh, level of uh, 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 balance or volume in their tanks. So they're generally not going below 60 or 75%. So they're constantly refilling so that there's uh, capacity, available capacity in the event that um, we can't get immediate deliveries. Yeah, I think at some point we will circle back about capacity. Like what does that mean and, and how long does it last us and what does emergency deliveries really uh, translate into in terms of sp like spending uh, and, and capacity for, for the city? Does it last us for 72 hours or does it last us for a month? So just like to have more information and learn more. Certainly, we can, we can find that information Thank for you from the departments. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, seeing no questions, 
and then we will go to public comments on this item. Yes, if there are any members of the public who wish to address this committee regarding item number five, now is the time to line up. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed, and we'd like to move this item to full board with recommendation. And on that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have uh, two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman and Member Safai excused. Thank you. And the motion passes. And please uh, call item number six, seven, and eight together. Yes, items number six, seven, and eight. Item number six is a resolution retroactively authorizing the Department of Public Health to accept and expend a grant in the amount of 341000 from the San Francisco Health Plan for participation in a program entitled San Francisco Department of Public Health, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing Consulting for the grant period of October 3rd, 2022 through December 31st, 2023. Item number seven is a resolution approving amendment number one to the agreement between Chinese Hospital Association and the Department of Public Health to provide subacute skilled nursing and skilled nursing facility beds for hospital overflow or emergency needs to increase the agreement by approximately 8.9 million for an amount not to exceed approximately 18.8 million effective upon approval of this resolution with no changes to the term of December 1st, 2022 through November 30th, 2024 and to authorize DPH to enter into uh, modifications of the agreement that do not materially increase the city's obligations or liabilities and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the agreement or this resolution. Item number eight is an ordinance, the appropriating 39.5 million from permanent salaries and dependent coverage fringe benefits and appropriating 39.5 million to overtime in the Department of Public Health in order to support the department's projected increases in overtime as required per administrative code. Madam Chair. Thank you, and today we have Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Good morning, Chair Tan and President Peskin. I'm Emily Cohen with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Happy to be here with you today to present on an accept and expend resolution that will support grant funding for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing's participation in the CalAIM program through the San Francisco Health Plan. This is a great example of our city's continued effort to leverage resources from a variety of sources to support people experiencing homelessness and the services for them. The resolution before you today authorizes the Department of Public Health to accept and expend a grant in the amount of $341,000 from the San Francisco Health Plan for participation in a program we're calling SFDPH and HSH Consulting. Upon approval from the board, DPH will accept these grant funds and work order them over to HSH because we do not have a direct financial relationship with the SF Health Plan. These grant funds will support, our con con support consulting services to the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to help us build the infrastructure and security needs required to participate in Medi-Cal for both HSH and our provider partners. We will specifically be using the funds for important IT upgrades to develop a data exchange and project management for these technology systems and consulting support to build the infrastructure needed to become a, a Medi-Cal billing entity. And that is my presentation.
and I'm also joined here by colleagues from DPH if there are questions for either of us. Thank you. Um, please help me understand those, it, the individuals that are under the care of Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing that will be able to then get re to receive medical reimbursements through the system because now then we are now tracking them and with the help of DPH and with this consultant that we can actually get reimbursement for the services provided to them. And we are getting that reimbursement as, well, I should say actually, that Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing is receiving that. We will be, as well as some of our provider partners, when we're able to bill for services such as housing location services. Um, there's some components of the supportive services within permanent supportive housing that we are able to bill to Medi-Cal through the CalAIM program. Each year, the state has legislatively tweaked a little bit what is billable and what's uh, are reimbursable at that level, but largely looking at housing search and placement services and support services for people in supportive housing, potentially some of the services within shelter as well. What is the projection that we will be able to receive reimbursement? I don't know that we have a projection yet. We're still building, or I'm sure we do. I do not have a projection yet, and I can get that for you. Um, but it is substantial, and it is anticipated to grow over time as more of the services for people experiencing homelessness are eligible. I see that this grant is retroactive, though. It is retroactive. Um, it was initially part of a two-part grant between the SF Health Plan and the Department of Public Health. It took us some time to figure out the infrastructure of how HSH could tap into those resources for our share of the work, and we determined a partnership that where we, they would work over the funds over. So we submitted this to the clerk, to the controller's office, I believe, back in September, and it's been making its way through um, approval processes from there. So once we receive, once we, so we have yet to act on. The grant, Correct. meaning we have well, yet to... HSH is yet to act on our component of it. I can't speak for DPH's component. So HSH has yet to act on this component of the grant, which means that for the services that you provide for that same time period, October 3rd, 2022 through December 31st, 2023, that you have not been able to... I guess, help me understand. So this grant is really that we can actually get a consultant, then help us to set up a system. Right. So then we can then subsequently to start getting reimbursement from Medi-Cal for the services that we provide. So what is the implementation timeline from the time that we could set up to start receiving reimbursements from Medi-Cal for HSH housing placement services? We are anticipating being able to begin billing in the next fiscal year. So, you know, the hope is to get the infrastructure up and going. It's a long-term investment, right? This is going to be for, yep. you know, God willing, knock down. It's a long, long time that this is going to be part of the infrastructure. So we have been building our CalAIM partnership with the Department of Public Health over the last probably two or three years and building in all, and the health plan and building in all of the requirements to begin this process. So. We're really excited about it. I think it's going to be a great opportunity, and it's a long-term strategy for leveraging uh, and, resources. Yeah, and seeing that this grant runs out in December 31st, my assumption is when, I, when, we do come, when you do come back and when we see you in June, you will be able to tell us what is the projection for reimbursement rate. Yes, that, that, I could probably tell it to you after I talk to my colleagues and get back to you with that information. But yes, and the um, SF Health Plan is agreeing to let, give us a little bit more time to implement as well. Wonderful. I look forward to learning more about the reimbursement. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.
And seeing no, uh, no questions and then no more questions, then we are going to go to public comments on, oh, wait, we're not going to public comments on this item because we call all three items together. We'll go to the next item, item seven, uh, Department of Public Health on the Chinese hospital's um, school nursing home contract. And this one actually has a BLA report, so we'll go to the presentation and then BLA. Hi. <clears throat> Good morning, um, Chair Chan and uh, President Peskin. I'm Kelly Hiramoto. I'm a Special Projects Manager with the Department of Public Health. I'm here to um, uh, give an update on the Chinese hospital contract. Um, Chinese hospital receives a skilled nursing facility license certification from the state this past June, which is the first step towards obtaining SNF subacute license. And once they have the SNF subacute license, the daily rate charged to the department is expected to drop by two-thirds. In August, they hired a consultant to guide them through the federal CMS certification process with CMS certification as the next step. They conducted a mock survey in October to test their readiness to be evaluated by CMS and feel the findings can be addressed quickly. They are on track to submit their CMS application in the next few weeks. We are anticipating they will receive CMS certification for Medicare and Medi-Cal billing in late 2024. The CMS certification will then allow them to apply for SNF subacute license at the end of 2024 or early 2025, which is our shared goal. The assumed rate change is reflected in the proposed contract budget extension. <clears throat> um, this is a continuing contract that was initially solicited in May of 2022. The beds are in regular use, which means that DPH can ensure that Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital has acute care bed availability. Since Laguna Honda is not yet admitting new clients, this would otherwise have been a very big problem due to the limited SNF beds that are available in the city. The original resolution requested an increase of $8,960,000 for a total agreement amount of $18,851,840 over the proposed term. Due to a recalculation to address identified and potential underfunding, we are providing an amendment to the original resolution. The proposed not to exceed amount is now $20,638,800, which is an increase of $10,746,960 or $1,786,960 from our original request. The changes are reflected in the BLA report recommendation. The primary change includes an increase to the contingency value. Instead of using a flat percentage to calculate the contingency, we increase the contingency value to be able to cover any potential funding gap if there's a delay in the SNFs of acute licensure, which would delay the use of the lower rate. This, would, this change would allow DPH to continue to fund all the contracted beds at a higher rate through the full requested one-year term. This vendor is only reimbursed for filled or utilized beds. The second change to the original submission was to correct a calculation error in the proposed funding level as the original did not fully cover current spending. Item seven, this is a resolution that approves uh, uh, the First Amendment to the Department of Public Health's contract with Chinese Hospital. This amendment extends the existing term uh, by one year through November 2024, and the resolution immediately before you increases the not to exceed amount from just under $10 million to $18.5 million. Um, this is a, an agreement for the city to purchase up to 23 skilled nursing beds at Chinese Hospital. Uh, the city only pays for beds that it occupies. It's occupied about 90% of the beds over the term of the, over the initial term of this contract. I think this contract is actually 
um, an improvement in many ways from the public health prior contract with Chinese Hospital based on our review and recommendations of that contract. In this case, there's no minimum purchase of beds, um, and this was the result of a competitive procurement. The city is still being charged, however, $1,350 per day per bed um, based on Chinese hospitals' um, acute care rates because um, they're not fully, they're, although they're licensed as a skilled nursing facility, they aren't able to bill um, Medicaid uh, for those services. Uh, so, but this, con but this contract does allow the city's contribution to be reduced to $500 per day um, once the hospital is able to charge that uh, insurer. Uh, we note the fiscal impact on page 11 of our report. Um, this contract is funded by the general fund. It is not reimbursable um, by FEMA, as was the case with the prior contract. Um, we did review the proposed amendment um, that the department has to increase the not to exceed amount to $20.6 million, and believe that's reasonable and recommend approval of the resolution as amended. Thank you, and um, I think, I mean, I, I thank you so much for your presentation today, and I understand that, you know, Chinese Hospital has hired a consultant to walk them through um, you know, the CMS certification process so that they can actually also receive reimbursement. Do we, at this point, now it's November 29, do we at this point have an understanding and a projection of the when this consultation be able to be completed and that um, to know whether or not they are able to receive certification for CMS reimbursement? We, well, the, the goal is the, the, the consultant helped set up the mock survey, and then um, once they are able to sort of step through and make sure that they have responded to the um, findings from that mock survey, they'll submit the application to CMS. It, it's at that point that we'll be waiting for CMS to schedule the survey to assess their readiness to be certified for Medicare and Medi-Cal building. That's a, a, a bit of an unknown because it will just depend on the scheduling availability of CMS. So similar to what's happening for Laguna Honda, it's just you're waiting for the um, I mean, here it says that they're planning to apply in December 2023. We're hoping this, that they will right? be able to, yes. I see. And then how long? So it would take eight months? That's our best guess, uh, that, which is the reason why we made the decision to modify the contingency and the off chance that if uh, CMS does not respond quickly to scheduling the survey, we would still be able to continue to use the beds uh, at the rate that they're currently being paid. And it's eight months from December, right? It's eight months from when they submit the application. That's our best guess. It really truly is our best guess. I think our advocacy will begin at that point to try and get the CMS survey scheduled as quickly as possible. Thank you. Just trying to understand the timeline and how, see how it actually aligns with our budget process. Thank you. And uh, we'll go to the next item for item number eight. This is for the DPH, Department of Public Health, sorry. Right. Through, through the chair, Jenny Lu, Chief Financial Officer uh, for the Department of Public Health, I am here to present on 
our uh, uh, adjustment to our overtime supplemental. Uh, we are requesting a budget neutral adjustment, uh, shifting about 39.5 million of regular hours and salary into overtime hours to ensure compliance with the overtime ordinance. I will note that this change does not increase our overall expenditure authority and the department is expected to stay within its approved operating budget for this fiscal year. If approved, our total overtime budget will increase to 71.6 million. This represents approximately 6.2% of our total salary budget. Um, as you can see, the breakdown of overtime hours um, in this next slide, uh, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General, and Laguna Honda Hospitals are the primary drivers of this, uh, of, of the overtime utilization. Uh, if we were to use a straight line projection, we would actually see approximately um, about 690 hours compared to our current year actuals. But we will note that our request is calculated using a straight line projection and 12% to adjust for additional COLA increases in salaries um, for January, as well as seasonal fluctuations um, that happens at the hospitals with both staffing and census. Um, and so this 12% is to ensure that we remain in compliance by year end. Uh, this next slide shows the top 10 classifications of our overtime by hours. And as you can see, these are all classifications um, that support the operations, clinical and otherwise, of, of hospitals. And just you know, specifically around the characteristics of overtime at DPH, um, we, it is needed at 24/7 facilities to ensure adequate staffing from op, for our operations, from clinical to food services to environmental services. We're also at a unique moment uh, in DPH uh, where we do see increased needs at Laguna Honda during this recertification process. Uh, we have changes in staffing um, based on regulatory compliance um, as well as significant increased training of staff to ensure that we are ready for recertification. Uh, somewhat related, we are also seeing a higher um, census than, than usual at San Francisco General. Uh, regardless, we are continuing to focus on filling uh, permanent positions to reduce overtime, um, but the overtime cost, as noted, will also increase um, annually um, consistent with the MOUs uh, negotiated by the city. Um, and one last thing I will note about our overtime, um, there's something called overtime is straight time. Of our total hours, 17.5% um, of these hours are expected to be what's considered overtime is straight time. These are instances where part-time workers are working additional hours above their regular shift, but still 40 or fewer hours in a particular work week. Uh, they are paid as a regular hourly wage and not time and a half, uh, but the city's financial system does report these as overtime hours and those hours do count towards um, our, uh, towards the overtime compliance um, within our ordinance. Uh, with that, that completes um, my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions members may have. Thank you. Item eight, this is an ordinance that uh, deappropriates $39.5 million um, in salaries and dependent coverage, uh, which is a fringe benefit. Uh, at the Department of Public Health and then reappropriates uh, that funding to various components of the Public Health Department's overtime budget for this fiscal year. Uh, the overtime, as we detail on page 16 and 17 of our report, this is largely driven by hospital-based positions, primarily nursing positions and other support positions in the two hospitals, the General Hospital and Laguna Honda. Um, there's no net increase to the, to the Department of Public Health's budget. Uh, we do note that um, this is a 123% increase in the department's overtime budget. 
This is about the scale of the increase um, that occurred last year when there was a similar process of transferring vacancy savings to overtime. And so I do think that there's um, some op overly optimistic assumptions about hiring that are embedded in the department's budget that could be corrected in a future budget process. I also think that, you know, we reviewed the overtime data and based on our assessment, it looks like about 5% of all department staff are going to exceed the city's overtime cap of 520 hours per person per year. Uh, and so I believe when, you're, when you have $71 million of overtime and you have that many people working over 25% of their regular hours on overtime, um, it suggests to me uh, that there could be better controls on overtime. I know there's vacancies, there's minimum staffing requirements, um, but when you're spending at this level, it's just probably not the case that every single hour um, is justified. Um, and in fact, this was, you know, the motivation for our current audit of the police departments over time, which is kind of increased at that scale. Um, so I just wanted to note that as a policy consideration. I do think that this immediate transfer of funds is reasonable. Uh, so we recommend approval of item eight. Thank you. And I think that during our briefing too, uh, in advance of this hearing, that uh, we had that discussion about seeing that your highest percentage of overtime spending is really with registered nurses and that we knew that was to be a problem even the prior year in that we know um, one of your biggest or largest contract is for registered nurses and um, to, for 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 contracting out and instead of hiring and being half them in-house and and I think that that's a question that even during our briefing is that need, we need to circle back and have a better understanding of both you know nurses um, hiring process but as well as what are your ratio between managing nurse versus nurses and how are your shifts um, among nurses being able to continue to be in a safe ratio and that they're not overtaxed and not over time, like in with, with over time. Um, and it is true that while we appreciate the fact that with this $39.5 million over time that you're able to have uh, saving, you know, from your staffing cost that you can manage this, uh, but it is like budget and legislative analyst report has mentioned that this is not a sustainable rate when you have well over 25% of staffing consistently using overtime. Um, so I look forward to this upcoming budget process that for you to address a bit more, not just about the spending and overtime spending and budgeting for overtime spending, but also how do you ease that cost uh, of overtime spending in a more sustainable pace by your hiring process, especially in this case is registered nurse. I do understand, you know, based on your presentation, that while over some of your overtime spending clearly is because of Laguna Honda, while over 100,000 hours over time that we see that, you know, in your projection, and that's what it's part of the issues here too. So clearly Laguna Honda is underway in terms of maybe making progress, getting recertification, and um, hopefully that ease the burden over time. But let's um, let's circle back, and, and like today, we were able to say we, we could be approving this overtime spending, but we, we really need to drill down 
uh, a, a, a process of hiring and sustainable practice. Yeah, absolutely. We work, look forward to working with you in this Thank you. Project. I generally don't care when we're transferring straight time to overtime as long as the mission is being discharged. I think it does raise the larger issue year after year, and last year we got cranky because you guys came after the fact, and this time you're doing it right and coming before the fact, which I acknowledge and appreciate. It does kind of raise the longer-term question, which is do we want to acknowledge that at least in part, the position count is unrealistically high, and do we want to come to terms with the fact that we should have a larger overtime budget and a smaller position count in part? I mean, I, I, I realize this is very much like what we're going through with police, which is we have funded, budgeted, vacant positions that you're having trouble filling, and that's just the nature of the human resource market, but at a certain point, if that goes on year after year, you shrink the position count and increase the overtime count. But I, just thoughts for come June. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it, it's been sort of a tricky to predict, um, you know, what our overtime use utilization is as we were pending certification um, uh, for Laguna Honda Hospital, but I agree that the, this is something that we should be looking at um, as part of the budget process to under be more realistic about what um, our hiring and salary projections will be. Yeah, and that's certainly a variable, but I think year over year, we're at the exact same percentage at 123%, right? I mean, yeah, it's the, like, the wasn't, hours it wasn't 122%? Yes. Was <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things, and you know, I won't speak for HR, but there are challenges just in terms of just across the healthcare industry, and we are still trying to figure out when, you know, when some of that will be settling, or if it will, and um, now that we have a couple of years of data, I agree it's time to take, um, to re really look at our what, our what our models look like. I should have become a nurse or a cop. <laughs> Thank you. Um, with that, we will go to public comments for all these three items. Yes, and, Madam. And Madam Chair, I assume, I guess this may be a question for the city attorney, that as to the amendments to item number seven that the budget analyst pointed out and that the department accepts that insofar as that raises the not to exceed amount, we would have to continue that item one week after we amend it. And the answer is Sarah saying yes, okay. With that, we'll go to public comment. And yes, we now invite members of the public uh, who wish to speak on uh, items number six, seven, or eight uh, to line up now. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you, seeing no public comments. Public comment is now closed. And with that, I uh, would like to make the motion to amend item seven as uh, recommended by the budget and legislative analyst and the roll call on the amendment, please. And on that motion uh, to amend the item number seven, how to increase the amount as stated by the budget and legislative analyst. Uh, Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman and Member Safai excused. And Thank then, you. oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say we have to make a motion to continue item seven one week. Yes, and then so we'll make the motion to... As, as moved by Supervisor Peskin, I would like to add that motion to 
uh, move the two items to full board with items six and eight to full board with recommendation and with that I want in one motion. Yep. And on that motion to forward the resolutions as item six and the ordinance and item eight to the full board with a positive recommendation and to continue the resolution on item seven to the December 6th meeting of this committee as amended. Um, Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mendelman and Member uh, Safai excused. Thank you. And the motion passes. And Mr. Clerk, please call item number 9 and 10 together. Yes, items number 9 and 10 are resolutions approving and authorizing the mayor and the director of the mayor's office of housing and community development to execute loan documents relating to a loan to provide financing for the acquisition of real property and pre-development activities, approving the form of the loan agreement and ancillary um, documents, ratifying and approving any action heretofore taken in connection with the property, granting general authority to city officials to take actions necessary to implement their respective resolutions, and finding that the loans are consistent with the general plan and the priority policies of the planning code. Item number nine is for the acquisition of real property located at 1234, 1270, and 1280 Great Highway in pre-development activities for the 100% affordable multifamily rental building for seniors in an aggregate amount not to exceed 24 million. Item number 10 is for the acquisition of real property located at 650 Divisadero Street in pre-development activities for a 100% affordable multifamily rental building in an aggregate amount not to exceed 15 million. Madam Chair. Thank you. And today we have the, uh, we have Mayor's Office of Housing and, and Community Development here. Good morning, Supervisors Chair Chan. Um, I'm Sarah Emerald, I'm the Director of Housing Development from OCD, and we're very excited to be before the committee today to present two of the five NOFER awards. Um, as you know, MoCD issued a multi-site acquisition and pre-development notice of funding availability in January of 2023 that required development teams to provide a property to the city that either one is able to compete for state financing and high resource areas, which includes economic, environmental, educational factors associated with positive outcomes for low-income households and particularly children, and provide remaining funding to sites in priority uh, equity geographies as defined by the housing element, or to support a BIPOC development team. By requiring this, MoCD was successful in identifying four projects that can be competitive, very competitive, for state resources, and the city is also supporting a BIPOC development team in another project for the very first time, a full 100% um, BIPOC team, which is amazing. Um, the five projects in total will further our commitment to reaching the goals outlined in the housing element by developing over 500 units in the next few years and mostly in areas that are resource and amenity rich. In addition to meeting geographic equity goals, these product, projects will provide housing for a diversity of incomes and in households, including families and seniors. The $66.6 million in the NOFA is a small dent in the great amount of work we need to do and only represents funding for the purchase of the parcels and pre-development activities. The development teams will be returning at GAP with purchase and sale agreements, ground lease approvals, and GAP loan agreements, likely around 2026, and after approval for additional financing from the state. With this, I'll turn it over to Matt Graves, our senior project manager, for the presentation. Hi. I'm Matt Graves, Senior Project Manager at MoCD, and I'll be presenting on two of the five sites you just heard about. Um, these two are the two that are before you today for consideration. 
2023 site acquisition NOFA was issued in January of this year, uh, requesting proposals from developers for sites seeking land acquisition and pre-development funds. Applications were due June 7th, 2023. Of the eight applications that were submitted, five were selected. The two I'm presenting today are either looking to take out interim acquisition financing or will be closing on land acquisition shortly. The remaining three projects will be presented at a later date as they move through development. <clears throat> the total NOFA awarded was $66.5 million, which was funded by COPs and other MOHCD sources. Applicants were expected to join with emerging and BIPOC developers as a means to build diverse and equitable capacity of San Francisco developers. Proposed sites need to imp implement an interim use plan between land transfer and construction start. 25% of the proposed units are required to be subsidized by LOSP, and developers need to maximize the city's subsidy by securing state and private sources for construction and permanent financing. The sponsors will provide the land to MOCD at construction close and will lease it back through a ground lease. Upon transfer, their acquisition loans will be considered paid in full. Construction will commence for each project by 2026 or 2027, with the goal to be occupied by 2029. Uh, the five awarded sites are designated on this map. The yellow dots represent the two sites requesting loan approval today, and the three brown dots are the projects forthcoming to this committee. The total request for all five sites is $66.5 million, and these five sites will provide 586 units. Uh, what you're looking at now is 1234 Great Highway. It's composed of 1234, 1270, and 1280 Great Highway. Uh, the property is currently a 54-room motel named Roadway Inn. It's located in the Outer Sunset District of San Francisco. It's spanning the entire block between Great Highway, La Playa, and from Lincoln to Irving. The site will continue to be operated as a motel during the interim use period and will be redeveloped into a 216-unit type three over one residential building with seven stories and ground floor commercial. The sponsors aim to promote the development of permanent affordable housing for low income and formerly homeless seniors in a high resource neighborhood on the west side that is consistent with the city's consolidated plan and master plan housing element. 1234 Great Highway will create 216 affordable units, 89 will be studios, 121 will be one bedrooms and six will be two bedrooms. 50% uh, of the units will serve formerly homeless seniors supported by the city's loss program, and 40% of units will be supported by the city's senior operating subsidy, or SOS. The remaining units will serve low-income seniors between 50% and 60% MOCD AMI. The ground floor will also include approximately 5,900 square feet of commercial retail space at the corner of Great Highway in Lincoln, which is planned to be an adult day health care center to be operated by SHE. The site is currently owned by 1234 Great Highway LLC, an affiliate of TNDC, and is being leased to a motel operator who is covering the cost of the site operations during its interim use, including taxes and insurance. Construction is pro projected to start in December of 2026. Uh, this slide is 650 Divisadero. Uh, 650 Divisadero is located in the Alamo Square District at the southeast corner of Divisadero Street and Grove Street. The proposed project is also consistent with the city's consolidated plan and master plan housing element, and it's located within an HCD designated highest resource area. It's currently a one-story commercial building occupied by the tenant Seismic Retrofitters. 
The space will continue to be operated by the commercial tenant during the interim use period until construction starts. The site will then be developed into 95 unit building with ground floor commercial space estimated to be about nine stories. Units will serve low income family households and will be composed of studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms and three bedrooms. Uh, these units will span most ED AMIs from 25% to 60%. One unit will be set aside as an on-site manager unit. 25% of units will serve formerly homeless households and will be supported by the city's local operating subsidy or LOSP again. Resident services and case management will be provided by Lutheran Social Services. Construction is projected to start in October 2026. With that, this concludes presentation. Joining me today uh, are additional MoCD staff to answer questions, as well as the sponsors of both sites, which is TNDC and Self-Help for the Elderly for 1234 Great Highway, and for 650 Divisadero, that's Jonathan Rose Companies and uh, Young Community Developers. Uh, respectfully, we ask for your support for these projects. Thank you very much. Thank you. Item nine, this is a resolution that approves a $24 million loan uh, to 1234 Great Highway LLC, an affiliate of Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. The purpose of the loan is to um, finance TNDC's acquisition of that site and to provide for pre-development, uh, to fund pre-development costs, uh, which we detail on page 24 of our report. Uh, the acquisition portion of this loan, which comprises the majority of this uh, loan, uh, it doesn't accrue any interest and may be forgiven um, if, this, if the land is transferred to the city, which is the city's intent. Um, it's for that reason we have a recommendation to amend the resolution to actually state that that's the city's intent, um, which I believe the department agrees with. Uh, we also note that this loan is primarily funded by certificates of participation and um, also $4 million of low and moderate uh, income housing asset funds. And then item 10 is a resolution to approve a $15 million loan um, to Jonathan Rose Companies and Young Community Developers to fund their acquisition of 650 Divisadero and also pay for some of their pre-development costs uh, for that site. Uh, this, the majority of this loan, about $12.8 million, will be used to fund the acquisition of that site. Um, and the intent is for, the, for that site to be later transferred to the city so that it can then be ground leased to an affordable housing operator. We have the same recommendation. Can you not hear me? Perfect. Oh, excuse me. Um, pardon. Well, the purpose of these loans is essentially to fund the acquisition of the land at 650 Divisadero and 1234 uh, Great Highway. Um, we do have recommendations to amend the resolutions uh, to state that it's the city's intent to acquire the land at those sites because this is actually funding the nonprofit's acquisition of that land. Um, and we do recommend approval of the resolutions as amended. Happy to answer any other questions. Thank you. Just want to make sure that uh, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development is in agreement with the amendment, which then it's to indicate that the city's, it is in the city's intent to enter into a purchase and sales agreement that we will be owning, to have take ownership of the land of both properties. Yes, Sheila Nicolopoulos, Mayor's Office of Housing. Yes, we provided the amended resolutions for both of these um, to the clerk. So those, we're in a, approval of those. Great, thank you. Um, I don't have any other questions. Um, with that, let's go to public comments on these two items.
Thank you, Madam Chair. We now invite members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on either uh, item numbers 9 and 10 to line up now. And as the chair declared uh, when this uh, committee convened, we are timing each speaker at one minute. Uh, first speaker, please. Hi, good afternoon, committee members. I'm Chris Cummings, the Director of Housing Development for the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. I'm here to voice support for TNDC's 1234 Great Highway Project and ask that you support uh, and approve this request for acquisition and pre-development funding to help move this important project forward. Um, as you heard during the presentation, the project will add much needed affordable housing units for seniors and uh, specifically some units for seniors with direct experiences of homelessness in a neighborhood that traditionally has been underserved by affordable housing uh, in the past. Um, additionally, uh, TNDC's partnership with self Help for the Elderly will ensure that uh, future residents of this property and uh, senior residents of the greater Sunset community uh, will have access to services, including health care. Um, also, since they're heard together, I would also like to voice support for the 650 Divisadero project. Um, obviously, I'm involved in affordable housing development, but um, I'm also a resident of that neighborhood, and I'm really excited to see that the city is prioritizing affordable housing along the Divisadero corridor. Uh, so I, in, in short, I urge you to support this request and thank you for your time and consideration. Thank you much, Chris Cummings, for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Good morning, committee members. Uh, my name is Robert Abbott. I'm a project manager with Young Community Developers. I'm just here in support of 650 Divisadero in partnership with Jonathan Rose. Uh, YCD has been in development for less than a decade now, but been established in the city as a workforce development leader for 50 years. Um, we are really excited about this opportunity to develop the space, but also our partnership with Jonathan Rose. Uh, this is our second project with them in the last three years, uh, which we believe is a big commitment um, to YCD's capacity building uh, and becoming a full-fledged developer in the city. Thank you very much. Thank you much, Robert Abbott. Next speaker, please. Hello, Chair and President. I'm speaking on this item because this is around the corner where I grew up, where we were renters and our whole building got evicted for condo conversion. So I think this is a good project to, uh, as a sort of reparations to the community in that um, perhaps there can be some way we can include certificate of preference holders to be first priority in this new development and also change the language from affordable to deeply affordable so that those who are pushed out the city would have an opportunity to live in the neighborhood that we occupied for so long. Thank you, see you on the next item. Thank you much for addressing this committee. Next speaker. Committee. Um, my name is Sabrina Barker. I'm Director of Development at Jonathan Rose Companies, and I'm here today to express support for the 650 Divisadero project. Um, it's a project we're really excited about in a wonderful neighborhood. Um, so I just want to uh, thank the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor's Office and our MoCD staff for um, the consideration of our funding proposal. Um, and I want to express thanks also to our partners uh, YCD, who, as uh, Robert mentioned, is our second project with them, and we're really excited to have such a uh, community-based partner. And um, we look forward to working with the city and the community to bring 95 units of affordable housing to uh, 650 
the Visadero and the Alamo Square neighborhood. So thank you very much. Thank you much for your comments. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Zuri Pease Green, and I'm actually here. I wasn't even here for this item, but I would hope that, like the young lady said, that you make this where it is deeply affordable because for San Francisco, low income is $100,000. And as we know, the majority of seniors don't make that type of money. And so I also would hope that because when he said seniors in the sunset, as we know, there are not a lot of homeless people in the sunset. So I would hope that we targeted seniors who are unhoused and seniors who have a certificate of preference and not just seniors coming from just anywhere. So we need to be very intentional about the housing and the language um, and make it to where it's not just low income, but it is not just affordable, but it is really low income because there's a difference. Thank you much, Sir. Peace Green. And seeing no further speakers, Madam Chair. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. Uh, I do concur with the fact that when it comes to housing in San Francisco, for those very low income, is really 30% of area medium income. And I think we have recognized that um, as a challenge for us, um, even including those families and seniors living in SRO. It's not seeing the ways to afford even the below market rate uh, rental units that we currently have and that's it's a problem that we we need to solve I'm, I'm not too sure we're going to be able to solve with these two developments today but um, I think it's definitely something for mayor's office of housing and community developments to consider uh, but with that uh, let's um, amend these two items I would like to move a motion to amend both items as proposed and recommended by the budget and legislative analyst a roll call please and on that motion to amend the resolutions in both items 9 and 10 has recommended by the budget and legislative analyst uh, member peskin aye peskin aye chair chan aye chan aye we have two ayes we advise yes good with the motion passes and then we'd like to move these two items to full board with recommendation and on that motion to forward both the resolutions and items 9 and 10 uh, to the full board with the positive recommendation as amended. Uh, Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman and Member Safai excused. Thank you, and the motion passes. Thank you, and um, Mr. Clerk, please call item 11 through 14 together. Yes, item numbers 11 through 14 are resolutions authorizing the Recreation and Park Department to accept and expend one grant and three in-kind grants for the India Basin Waterfront Park Initiative for a term to begin upon approval of the resolutions through December 2026 and authorizing the Recreation and Park Department to enter into amendments or modifications to the respective agreements that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the project or the respective resolutions. Item number 11 is a grant valued at approximately 50 million from the San Francisco Foundation and authorizes the solicitation of donations in various private entities and foundations, notwithstanding the behested payment ordinance. Item number 12 is an in-kind grant valued at approximately 2.8 million from the Trust for Public Land. Item number 13 is an in-kind grant valued at approximately 1 million from the A. Philip Randolph Institute. And item number 14 is an in-kind grant valued at approximately 2 million from the San Francisco Parks Alliance. Madam Chair. 
Thank you. We'll have Rec and Park, Recreation and Park Department here. Good morning, Chairwoman Chan and President Peskin. Actually, before I begin, I've been asked to make one clarifying change to resolution. Sorry, let me adjust this a little. 231170. Um, on page four, line 16, um, relating to the behest of payment waiver, we can add the language for six months from the effective date of this resolution. Um, our attorney notes that this is clarifying existing law, so it's not a substantive change. Um, I do have a lot of questions about this particular resolution, not for the fact that it's about the accept and expand grant. I just do not understand. Sorry, before we go into the presentation, sure. I, I just want to clear that I'm supportive of the India Basin Waterfront Park. It's a critical um, open space uh, for the community, um, particularly in the southeast sector, have long suffered, you know, the sewage plants and the power plants <laughs> pollution. It is, it is time that the community actually have uh, open space that is like what they deserve for decades and generations now. What I do have issues with though, it's a technical issue that I would like to get the help from the city attorney. I don't understand why is the waiver and accept and expand grant are in one resolution instead of two. Like, why aren't we having accept and expand grants of the $50 million, like all the other resolution, item 12, 13, 14, from San Francisco Foundation for the $50 million as standalone accept and expand grant resolution, and then, and then separately to actually have a behest payment waiver and just for the waiver alone. So I, I don't understand why the two is together in one resolution. It makes it kind of murky and I've never seen it done before. Typically you come with the behest payment waiver and then you receive the waiver and then you go out and get behest payment and, and you ask for donation and then you come back with the accept and expand grant. So that's my only questions really about this one, but let's go to the presentation for okay. the uh, India Basin Water Farm Park for just for the project itself so that we all can praise the project. <laughs> and then let's go down and get down to the technicality of the resolutions. Sure, thank you, Supervisor. Um, so I'm here today um, with, as I said, I'm Lisa Branson, I'm Director of Partnerships at the Recreation Park Department. And I'm here today with Jackie Bryan, who's the Executive Director of the A. Philip Randolph Institute, to ask you to approve a legislative package that will allow the department to accept grants from four nonprofit partners, totaling up to approximately $55.8 million, to authorize the department to enter into this set of agreements with these partners, and to authorize a six-month waiver from the behested payment ordinance to aid the mayor and department staff in helping to secure the last amount of funding for this important initiative. And I also wanted to note that this legislation is supported by Supervisor Walton, who unfortunately isn't able to be here today, but has been fully supportive. Um, so I'll start with a little bit of background. The India Basin Initiative is about bringing a world-class park to the city's southern waterfront in deep partnership with the Bayview community, which has long advocated for this project. As you know, the Bayview is among the most underserved in San Francisco with high levels of low-income residents, poor health outcomes, and a high concentration of public housing. This initiative is an ambitious, multi-pronged partnership between Rec and Park, the community, and a national 
citywide, and community nonprofit, the Trust for Public Land, San Francisco Parks Alliance, and the A. Philip Randolph Institute. The partners are working together to bring a transformational new park to the Bayview. Um, and with the passage of this legislation, we'll add the San Francisco Foundation to the structure of the partnership. Importantly, this nationally recognized project is guided by an Equitable Development Plan, or EDP, which is an emerging best practice in the park world in which community members help create a plan that ensures the benefits of the project accrue to the local community. To date, the project has been funded by public funds and a $25 million grant from the John Pritzker Family Fund that the Board of Supervisors authorized the department to accept in 2019. Um, the project will create a 10-acre waterfront park out of an existing but underperforming park and a parcel at 900 Innes that the department acquired in 2014. We'll also close a gap in the Bay Trail. At the top of this slide is, um, is an original image of the parcels, and you can see the 900 Innes parcel covered with cement and decrepit buildings. The photos below show renderings of what the park will become, and we are already in process to keep the existing park open and ensure consistent community access to green space, the project is being constructed in three phases. Phase one was the remediation of the formerly industrial parcel and was completed last year. Phase two is the construction of a new park on that parcel, which as you can see from this amazing picture, is well underway and will be completed next year. Phase three will be the transformation of the existing park and will begin after the southern part of the park opens. Now I want to turn it over to Jackie for a moment to talk a little bit about the EDP, an effort that she and her organization are leading. The Equitable Development Plan is an initiative guided by equitable development, driven and drafted by community voices. Um, we are very intentional about engaging with community and many of those community leaders residents and business owners are with us today. After two years and more than 50 meetings, we've published a plan in February of last year. So even through the pandemic, we worked very closely with community. And in the plan, community members have guided partners to focus on six areas of focus, arts, culture, and identity, workforce and business development, transportation, access, and connectivity, healthy communities and ecology, youth opportunities, and housing security. Um, next slide. Um, our partners have already been implementing projects based on direction from and with community encapsulated in the EDP. And honestly, we're really only scratching the surface on so much potential um, for the space. So on the top left, you see the India Basin Workforce Development Program. 16 participants completed construction tr skills training, and 11 are actually working in union jobs as of November 2023, and even on our project. Um, the top right is Teen Night, which brought about 150 youth out to the park for um, a night of fun, positive activities. One of the things we heard from community members is it's very difficult to capture that adolescent youth. Many of our parks are designed for younger children um, and our community is in much need of um, opportunities for the adolescent youth to do things positive and constructive. 
On the bottom left, you'll see a photo of our Share Your Black Experience. Um, this happened in, during Black History Month, really celebrating the black culture. And we brought together community members to share their stories and really capture some of those stories so that we can use that as part of the park visitor experience in the future. Um, and then lastly, that bottom right corner, you see the Bayview Safety Swim and Splash program, um, which is in partnership with our Bayview YMCA. It's an amazing program where kids learn to swim for free. Um, we're really targeting our K through five uh, youth. And so far, more than 230 youth have been, uh, have participated in the program to date, and one that we want to continue to have. So as we invite our community down to the shoreline to have this waterfront experience, we don't want to forget the history of the connection of water and how that might impact the black community. Our next slide will show you uh, the Sundown Cinema that happened just in September of this year where our partners from the San Francisco Parks Alliance hosted a free screening of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever at the park. Again, really celebrating history and making connections uh, within the community. Our top right uh, photo shows just last month the opening of the Community Innovation Lab. So, during the pandemic, we hosted what was called a tech hub where we offered high-speed Wi-Fi internet and device lending to community members. Um, we're really expanding that and piloting additional activities that can be held in the park. So when we were open, we had tons of community members come down and say, hey, you know what, this is a great space for programs, this is a great space for um, access to resources. So we'll continue to expand that and you, you see now some infrastructure that we have to do that at the park. Um, bottom left, you'll see youth exploring STEM activities at our adjacent eco center. So this is just a few minutes walk along the shoreline over to Heron's Head Park. But the program was supported by the EDP initiative and again, an opportunity for our community to be able to access science and technology right in our own neighborhood. The bottom right shows last year's holiday gift giveaway. Uh, we are preparing to do that again this year. We just wrapped up our distribution of the turkey giveaway. Um, and we're really looking forward to hosting this third annual event at the park where um, hundreds of families come out again to connect um, and to feel a sense of community. There are other initiatives already in process, including park activation with music and events for local merchants, as well as providing financial coaching for community members. So we're not only thinking about um, recreational programs, we're really thinking about the overall impact and how do we really build equity in a community that has been starved for so many generations. Um, so I'll go ahead and kick it back over to Lisa. Thanks, Jackie. So to the numbers, um, uh, as I mentioned, India Basin is a $200 million initiative that includes funds for park design, remediation, and construction, and importantly, $15 million for EDP projects and programs. As I mentioned, the initiative is supported by approximately $123 million in public funding and a private grant of $25 million from the John Pritzker Family Fund. We're now seeking approval for the remaining 50 to 55 million 
to construct the last phase of the project and execute the EDP projects and programs. To date, the partners have, sec have secured or in conversations for about $35 million in donations and pledges from donors supportive of these initiatives, and these donations are with partners awaiting this approval. Committed funders include um, the Mimi and Peter Haas Fund, the Hellman Foundation, and the 11th Street Bridge Project, which is a um, sister project in Washington, D.C., also being developed with an equitable development plan. Um, this new set of agreements recognizes the partner's goal of raising at least $50 million in additional private funding and creates a new partnership relationship with the San Francisco Foundation and all of the partners to steward the funds. This is made the most sense because the San Francisco Foundation is a long-standing community partner in San Francisco with a mission that is very much aligned with the goals of the project, to mobilize resources and act as a catalyst for change, to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area. The agreement between the San Francisco Foundation and all of the partners will establish two funds at the San Francisco Foundation, a project fund that will primarily support project construction and an EDP fund that will support park-related projects and programs run by RPD, initiative partners, or community-serving nonprofits. It requires all of the partners to comply with city disclosure, record-keeping, and auditing requirements, and it codifies the partnership structure and roles and responsibilities. And here's an outline of the initiative structure, which con consists of an executive team that includes one member of each project partner and is the initiative's primary decision-making body. Um, and uh, with the passage of this legislation, the San Francisco Foundation will join the executive team. And um, the executive team makes decisions based on recommendations from underlying subject matter expert committees and teams. Um, and then the related agreements um, all tie back to the San Francisco Foundation Agreement. Normally, we would include the roles and responsibilities in separate agreements, but we wanted all the partners to agree together on the structure. So those roles are in the overall agreement, and each partner commits to comply with them in the related agreement. The partners also agree to comply with record-keeping, auditing, and disclosure requirements of the main agreement, and, work, um, and these agreements account for some additional donations to come in kind from each partner. This is a very preliminary working budget that underlies these agreements. This will evolve as each partner finalizes its work plan as specified in their agreements and serves, so serves as an estimate of how funds from the San Francisco Foundation would be allocated to each partner as directed by the executive team. The agreement allows for adjustment of the budget in writing. Um, and then to the behested payments waiver. As I mentioned in the beginning of the presentation, we're seeking a six-month waiver for the department and the mayor from the behested payment ordinance. And before I talk about why this is important, I did want to share the incredible uniqueness of the campaign that the partners are running that matches the project's commitment to equity in every element. Typically, campaign committees are run by donors to the project. For India Basin, the campaign strategy and tactics are being directed directed by an inclusive campaign cabinet that includes both donors and community members. The 
this picture is from the cabinet kickoff in 2022, I believe. And in it, there are committed donors and community members in breakout groups strategizing with each other about how to launch the campaign. It is remarkable to see different communities come together from across the city to support this project. And the waiver is important because as many of the cabinets will tell you, fundraising is hard. We've been at this for four years and are hoping to meet the $75 million goals soon. And the waiver will make that last push just a little easier. It will allow the mayor, RPD staff, and commissioners to support partners on all of the work and will ease concerns I've heard generally from funders. Um, the board included the short-term the board included the short-term waiver in the ordinance if it, and I'm quoting, would not create an appearance of impropri impropriety and would be in the public interest. The transparency and reporting partners commit to in these agreements ensures the funds will be used to build the park and implement the EDP. And there's no question that this initiative is in the highest public interest um, for this community and for the city as a whole. So we hope you'll approve the funding, the package of agreements, and the waiver that will lead to the creation of a transformational new park in a neighborhood that deserves a great park. Thank you very much. Thank you, and again, I think this is probably for the city attorney. I am just confused about, I, I do not have any other questions about, and you know what, actually I do have one question about the India Basin Water Park with the public dollars that was actually based on the bond dollars that, approved by the voters 2019, um, Prop B, in March or June uh, 2019. And how much is it at that time for the bond dollars? I believe it was $29 million. And so the public dollars that it's included in the pine chart that it was indicating, um, you know, which is about like $123 million, out of which is about, did you say $29 million were from the bond dollars? That's right. And then so what is the rest coming from? So I don't have the, I'm happy to get you an exact list, but um, there's state, federal, and regional funding in there as well. Love to have the breakdown of the public funds. Of course, we'll get that to you. And thank you. And then again, like this is the confusing part. I don't understand why is the accept and expand grant is like with the behest waiver. Technically, you would have the two different ones, just like the the. 12 and 13 and 14 and have the accept and expend grant stand alone for the $15 million from San Francisco Foundation. And then, you know, separately you will have the behest payment waiver as an ordinance at asking for the waiver. Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, um, legally there's no reason that they have to be done separately. The waivers under the behest payment ordinance are done by resolution. So this can be done by resolution as part of this accept and expend. Um, my understanding is that the, the request for the waiver applies to future fundraising and not fundraising that's being accepted and expended here. Right. Um, so there's no legal reason why the board can't act on them um, through the approval of one single resolution. For the sake of just being clean about this and, and you know, is there any way that we can d divide that just, just so that we accept and expand the San Francisco $50 million, the San Francisco Foundation $50 million, and then we <laughs> just do the um, behest payment waiver in a separate resolution, divide the question? I think what you could do would be to um, duplicate the file 
and from one copy of it, delete everything having to do with the behested yep. payment. From the other, delete everything having to do with the accept and expend. Can we, and can you'll we, just end up with two parallel versions. That'd be great. And do you actually, I, I would love to do that. Is that, is that okay? I mean, I, mean I, I think that just be more, it's going to just be a cleaner that you actually do have a behest payment waiver standalone showing that indicating it's for future, you know, fundraising efforts with the six months time period that you indicated. And then we're now just officially accept and expand already all these, all these um, grants so that it's, it's separate. I, can I ask one question? Cause we don't yep. have our attorney here. So that would, they would, if you were to vote to approve this, they would then, they could move today. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. We would just make, be making a carbon copy of this right. and then, Sorry. and dividing it in two and just leaving the two different issues separately. Wonderful. And then when you indicate the time period of six months, do you have the amendments and the actual language for that amendments to indicate the six months time period? I think that that would go with the behested payment piece of it. And right. we knew all along, I don't know, you know, the resolutions are sometimes imperfect, but it wasn't included, but it was certainly what we were expecting. So that could just be added to the behested payments the the way the resolution that includes the behested payments waiver. And could you read at least for us the amendments that you're indicating for the six months period? Is it six months for the passage or do you actually have a specific time period for the amendment? For the six, six months? months from the passage of the amendment of Sorry. the resolution. Will be will we be ready or are you ready for that amendment? <laughs> do you want me to read it again? I, I, Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, I understand that my colleague drafted this, and so if you'd like to read into the record, that would be terrific. The committee can act on that amendment and then duplicate the file and instruct us in how to uh, amend the two copies. Uh, before we go to public comments, I would appreciate if you read that into the records in case that any members want to um, comment on the amendment. Sure thing. So um, the language that... Um our deputy city attorney sent me was, excuse me, I want to get it exactly right, um, the language for six months from the effective date of this resolution. I'm sorry, page, page line. Oh, sorry, excuse me, page four, line 16. Page four, line 16, so. Com completely read lines. Say that again, uh, that's the further resolved under section 3.620F, is that the, what you're saying? Is that the clause? If you can read the complete clause Sorry. with the amendment. Let me pull the resolution. So further resolved. Sorry, I'm going to do it from my email. Okay. You, we don't, okay, further resolved that under section 3.620F of the Campaign and Governmental Conduct Code, the Board of Supervisors hereby waives application of the behested payment ordinance for six months from the effective date of this resolution to fundraising from nonprofits, private organizations, and grant makers and foundations to support the initiative. And so it doesn't say private individuals, it says private organizations. Uh, I don't have an answer to that question. Through the chair, 
Deputy City Attorney. Um, Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, I'm not sure why that particular language was chosen, whether the intent is to fundraise from individuals or from organizations or both. Um, if the intent is to have as broad a waiver as possible, we would probably want to have it include both categories, but I, I don't know what the intent is. Well, well, let me ask you this. Insofar as this is a very, well, let, let me take a step back. Getting on to four years ago, there were massive revelations in this city that there was corruption, and that corruption was, we had, we, we, we had a behested payment scheme, the state of California had a behested payment scheme, and it applied to all of us elected officials, but it didn't apply to department heads. And the department head who got in trouble, who is now sitting in the jail, was using behested payments, which were not reportable by department heads, and taking lots of money from Recology, running it through the Parks Alliance, and it became the shame and embarrassment of San Francisco. That led to a public integrity report done by the Office of the Controller that recommended to this Board of Supervisors that we broaden our local behested payment ordinance to cover department heads, which then Supervisor Matt Haney introduced, and ultimately this board passed. And um, we have waived the behested, we've given a behested payment waiver before. As a matter of fact, we did it for APEC. Um, this seems to be, it seems like, and let's just read the most important part of what this actually means, and it's set forth in one of the recitals. Let's see if I could find it. Um, this means that donations can be solicited from persons or entities who would qualify as interested parties under the behested payment ordinance. Now my question is that given that this is a pretty short-term limited duration behested payment waiver request for a project that we all agree is superlative and is being done right, I am proud to have played my little role by getting $5 million out of the Bay Area Restoration Authority for the uh, Shipwrights Cottage and was on the board when Supervisor Maxwell, who I think Connie Chan worked for at the time, uh, got that property landmarked and saved. So we're, we're all in it together. We're all rowing the same direction. I've been there for tours with Jackie. I'm 100% I'm down. But it seems to me like we must know who the, and the San Francisco Foundation coming along gives us confidence about everything being on the up and up, even though I know the Parks Alliance is still involved, but that is what it is. Um, do we know who the universe of donors are in this very compressed time frame? And do we know what or who would qualify as interested parties at this point? We don't have specific donors in mind. We just want to co be able to coordinate very closely with our partners. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, Beverly? oh, sorry, go ahead. Hi, President Baskin and Budget Chair Chan. We're also happy. We, I reached out to the Budget Chair Committee members as well to kind of brief and provide briefings ahead of time. Happy to kind of provide additional follow-up information. I know there's interest in donor pieces, but to Lisa's point, I think at this time it's just allowing us to have those conversations, and the moment we have folks, we're happy to share that list with everyone. 
And, and, and then my assumption is that like, are there actually any, any retroactivity required for these behest uh, payment waiver for these accept and expand grant? No. Okay. Um, with that, uh, I think let's just go to public comment and then uh, which limits to one minute today and then uh, can comments on both the project itself and also the behest waiver. And we now invite members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on uh, items 11 through 14 uh, to line up now. Uh, as the chair stated, uh, when this committee convened, we are timing each speaker at one minute today. So uh, if you begin speaking, I'll start your time. Good afternoon. My name is Diane Christie. I'm a lifelong resident of the Baby Hearns Point um, neighborhood. Um, though I am in construction garb, I'm here to um, represent um, for the community and the equitable um, aspect of this whole, of this, of this uh, measure. So uh, just a little story, uh, over 10 years ago, I lost my child in a swimming accident. And he was 11 years old at that time. And um, recently I became aware of the Baby Splash Swim Safety Program. And because of that, um, it is bringing, it's bringing training and life, life skills to the children of the Bayview Hunters Point area. Um, brown and black children are historically um, lost in swimming drowning accidents more than any other culture in America. And this is very important for us because we need to save our children. Our children are at risk at the age of one to five, 10, 20 years old because they don't have these life skills. Elapsed. Okay, so please, please continue that program and please add more money to it. Th I appreciate it. Thank you for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. My name is Oscar James. For 77 years, I've lived out in Bayview Hunters Point. And things that I'm finding out through this park, creating this park, is the history of the Native Americans, the Chinese uh, shrimp boats, and uh, the African Americans in that community. Uh, my whole thing is to educate these young brothers and sisters in our community and give them the wisdom, the opportunity to create jobs, business opportunities uh, for themselves. Of many years, people in our community have suffered for the lack of the knowledge of, of job opportunities, business opportunities, and the histories of our community. So please support this and bring this to fruition. Thank you very much. Thank you much, Oscar James, for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Leela Pittman. I am a businesswoman in San Francisco Baby Hunters Point. I run an all-female youth performing arts and community stewardship program there. And as a minority businesswoman, community leader, cabinet member of this initiative and longtime resident of Baby Hunters Point, it is extremely imperative that we continue to activate community spaces that not only bring equity and sustainability to the community, but also is responsible for the social, emotional, physical, and mental development of the residents who sustain it. And I can't really speak to the political aspect of why the waiver and the agreement was combined, but in the history of dealing with underserved neighborhoods and minorities in this city containing politics, city and state, it is such a long drawn out process that it almost seems like things are never come to completion. And so I stand in full solidarity and support 
of this initiative. And I ask that you guys be open-minded and you guys continue to Speaking allow the funding to come in so that way we continue to revitalize our community. Thank you, for addressing this committee. Again, I, I'm sorry to cut anybody off, but we are timing each speaker at one minute. Thank you so much. Next speaker, please. Hi, Uzuri Peace Green. I'm a non, I run a nonprofit that my husband started, and I'm a community leader. And the funny thing is, is that when you're talking about Mission Bay, who has a part of their park that hasn't even been completed yet or even started on, and not one time did corruption enter into your language for anybody else until it comes to our community. And once it gets to our community, then all of a sudden you want to use the word corruption, and we didn't even know where the money is going. Hell, you've been giving them money, and you still don't know where it's going, and I promise you they're not going to start doing anything in January and have an opening. So for the one time, let us continue doing what we're doing. She just said that the waiver, I mean, the waiver and everything can be together because we don't want the process prolonged, which is what happens when it comes to the black and brown community. And it's being able to cross-pollinate in India Basin. We had kids from Patrol Hill, all the way over in the Fillmore, to Sunnydale, going over there to the teens program and learning how to swim and enjoying that park because it's cross-pollinating and it's bringing communities together, which is, and it's being done in a very safe manner. So Speaker stop playing and stop Stop Thank you, Mr. P. Screen, for addressing this committee. Thank you much, Ms. P. Screen. Next speaker, please. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Micah Pinkston. I am the founder and executive director from The Heart uh, in Bayview Hunters Point, District 10. I oversee senior housing as well as food distribution within community, um, community cleanups, uh, which I bring in our youth uh, with stipends, and we clean the neighborhoods. Um, we also help uh, APRI at the Indian Basin with Team Night. Team Night was amazing and is amazing. We're able to get uh, youth from all around San Francisco to come out and join us. Um, and so I think that this is something that uh, you guys should really think about really strongly. This will keep children out of trouble. I also uh, represent violence prevention. We need to have this initiative. And I have a daughter who is black, who swims, an excellent swimmer, and can teach others to swim. We need this here. Our black children, our brown children lack swimming. Um, you know, they don't know these, these things are not presented to them in our community, and we need this. So please do not uh, put us on hold Thank you much, uh, due to the lack of funding. Thank you. Thank you much. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, um, Chairwoman Chen and Supervisor Peskin. I'm Michael Wong from CYC. Um, I have been involved in the Indian Basin Equitable Development for some years. And CYC opened an uh, office in Bayville 14 years ago to serve the monolingual and vulnerable API residents as another way to connect the uh, diverse neighborhoods. So we see that the Indian Basin is a good opportunity to bring the community together so the API residents can enjoy the recreation and educational opportunities. My dream is to bring the CYC famous dragon boat to the Indian shore so the African-American kids and Asian kids can paddle together. I fully support the package and the waiver. Thank you. Thank you much for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. 
Uh, my name is Louis Mezzi. I was uh, born here in San Francisco and raised in Bayview Hunters Point. Uh, since growing up, I always took field trips to the Indy Basin uh, Shoreline Park, and I always wondered why it wasn't uh, as nice or as, as uh, welcoming as some of these other parks in San Francisco. Um, and just recently, about like two years ago, I had a birthday celebration so, uh, at the Indian Basin Shoreline Park. So I would say it's very pivotal for the youth and the community. And I hope you approve this legislation so that the city can accept the funding and continue to work with my community to successfully deliver this initiative. Thank you. Thank you much for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Good morning, Madam Chairperson um, and um, Commissioner Piskin and all who are present. My name is Dedria Smith, who was born on Navy Road Street and worked for A. Philip Randolph Institute here in Bayview. We like to ask your support commissioners to allow the budget to support India Basin. For many reasons, we have been blessed to see this area come from nothing to move to moving forward with offering local hire, local contractors, opportunities for local business, and that's very important. Space provides physical fitness activities. It offers like capoeira, it offers offer tai chi, dog walking, entertainment, just to name a few. It may be nice to also have bocce, bocce ball brought here. We have the opportunity to go here where for, where I've where I've myself given info session, which consists of sharing job opportunity, resume opportunities, computers offered, and they can also bring their children because it had a play area for them. So that wasn't a reason for them not to be able to participate. We have special events where individuals, our seniors, children, families, can come and engage, and it's been a safe environment. Commissioners, we ask for your support so that we can continue Thank to have- Thank you so much for addressing this committee. Again, I do apologize for cutting anybody off, but we are timing each speaker at one minute. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Uh, good morning, supervisors. Uh, my name is Stefan Franz. I'm the former chair of Prozac and current president of Friends Lafayette Park Board. Today, I'm here to express complete support for the package of agreements and the waiver regarding India Basin Waterfront Park initiative that's in front of you. I currently produce hundreds of events in San Francisco each year and can attest to the tremendous impact that the new parks and activations in Bayview Hunters Point have been bringing to the community. This fall, I worked together with India Basin Park partners, including SFRPD, Trust for Public Land, uh, SFPA and Bayview Opera House, APRI, to put on a six-show concert series in India Basin Park. Uh, the series was quite successful. It, uh, embodied the economic development plan that everybody has been talking about uh, with the intention of really supporting local artists. Uh, <clears throat> my history to this neighborhood goes back to my term on Prozac, uh, where we actually acquired 900 Innis in 2014. And it's amazing to be out there and see uh, this park take shape. Thank you much, Stefan Franz. I urge you guys to, uh, to adopt this. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Shirley, and I'm native San Franciscan, born and raised in the Bayview Hunters Point. I'm here representing APRISF. Um, with everyone else saying everything, but growing up in the neighborhood and still seeing it now on the streets, like I live up on West Point Harbor Road, we still have kids out there playing in the streets. The neighborhood does not have a safe place for our children, the teenagers. Um, we're all coming together to 
unite our community. Right up the street is a park that's abandoned, closed down, where the kids cannot play basketball, so they're outside on the streets. We need something for our kids, our teenagers, the community to be and have a safe haven, and also jobs for our community where a lot of them are not out there finding jobs because they've never had the um, help and the access and the knowledge of what we can offer. So I wish we can propose this legislation Thank you much, and help our community. Thank you. Thank you much. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Yoshida Pitts. And I just want to say, you guys, please allow this park to continue. I'm there. I'm working on it. And I'm, a pr I'm proud to be working at that park. Not only that, I have an eight-year-old son. And with, with him, I'd love to take him and his friends and bring them down to that park. That's one of his favorite parks. That and the sundowner, you know. And so with that being said, we need to have these kids less off, off their phones and continue to play at these parks. It's, the parks are very important to me and to my whole community and my family. That's all I got to say is just please keep the funding. Thank you. Thanks so much for addressing this committee. Yoshida Pet. Next, next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Chair Chen, President Peskin. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, to the speaker, directly into the mic, please. Talk My name you. is Sharka Volenikova, and I'm here today to strongly support the package of agreements and the waiver regarding the India Basin Waterfront Park, Park Initiative and the community where um, this is being built. I'm the director of the Bay Area Parks for People program at Crest Republic Land and part of the project management team for, for the India Basin Shoreline Park. TPL manages the design process portion of the park creation. And um, as you well know, this large park in this neighborhood is not only a long coming and sorely needed recreational amenity, for the residents there, but will also be an iconic San Francisco, San Francisco park with national interest and impact. Um, the development of this park very closely aligns with the mission of TPL to create parks and protect land to ensure healthy, livable communities for generations to come. And as a San Francisco resident myself, I'm a biker, I'm a sailor, and I can't wait for this park to be built. And Speaker time has elapsed. But we do thank you for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Um, my name is Malaya Despani. I am from the community Bayview Hunters Point, and I am 24 years old, and I am still currently a youth. And I feel like this park will be very good for children because right now the MLK pool that you guys are saying or talking about that we have is utilized for a lot of different things right now. So I feel like the park will help a lot of our youth stay out of trouble you know, do better things for themselves, have more guidance, rather than sitting on West Point or Harbor Road, shooting each other up, doing nothing. I feel like this is something very good for our community, and you guys should definitely let us keep it and keep it going, and don't sit here and take it from us, because we barely have any parks or anything to do anything at, at the moment. So this is something good and positive, and keep it going, please. Thank you. Thank you much for addressing this committee. 
Next speaker, please. I love that comment. Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to share. My name is Tissing Parker, and I'm the Senior Executive Director of the Bayview Hunters Point YMCA. And I am standing here um, as a representative of our organization uh, to speak in support of this project and ask that you will support this project. We know that there are going to be great opportunities with the India Basin Project, and we believe the Equitable Development Plan is essential to ensure that the community will have access to the opportunities that will be be afforded in that neighborhood and so we want to encourage you to support that effort uh, and get behind it so that as the young ladies there um, our youth and our families will have opportunities to engage and participate in safe activities thank you thank you much tasting parker for addressing this committee next speaker please hello my name is drew cadelia uh, senior director of youth and teen services for the baby hunters point ymca I'm here to voice my support for the resolutions as well as the equitable development plan. I'm the project manager for the Baby Swim and Splash program, um, and I just want to speak to the impacts that it has had, as has already been shared. We've ser serviced uh, over, well, hundreds of kids so far, uh, with more to come in the program in our first two years, and I want to share a brief story about one of our participants. A graduate of our spring session, a young lady who went to Charles Drew Elementary, uh, had never swam before. No one in her family was able to swim, and they avoided water and open spaces where water was present. Her mother attended every single class, watched her swim. She is now uh, regularly at pools, engaging in parks, and the family has shared that they hope to become instructors for this program as well and teach more youth in the future. So in closing, I just want to share my support for this resolution and speaker's time has elapsed. Thank you. But thank you much, Drew Kadea, for um, addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Vinoy McCree. I'm the founder and executive director of Do The Activities. I am here supporting APRI. Um, I'm just here to say, I remember when I was, I'm born and raised in Bayview. Um, a few years ago, me growing up, it wasn't safe. I wasn't comfortable going down there. And um, I have a youth program and my youth program, I know for sure that they're able to go down there with different subdivisions, West Point, Harbor, um, who's known not to really get along with one another and really be there and communicate with one another without the BS. Um, I'm just, I just support this and I think you guys should support it too. Thank you. Thank you much for uh, providing your testimony. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, my name is Demetrius Williams. I'm the president of the San Francisco Hyper Local Business Building Trades Contractors Collective. We formed a group here in Bayview to uh, address uh, job opportunities at contractors that uh, San Francisco that wasn't being given to the San Francisco locals. So I am in support of this measurement where hopefully that APR does get it so they can let the community, I use the phrase uh, FUBU, for us, by us, to build this part. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Demetrius Williams. Next speaker, please. Hello, I'm Rome Jones. Um, also here to express my support. I think that investment in the park is one small example of investment in the community. And as we continue to do that and support things like this, there's opportunity for the community to continue to grow in ways that decrease violence and open up 
a number of sustainable activities where people can lead individual lives. So let's continue to support stuff like this. Thank you, supervisors. Thank you, Mr. Roman Jones. Next speaker, please. Uh, how you doing? My name is Claytis Norman, owner of Integrity First Plumbing, also vice president of San Francisco Hyperlocal Building Trades uh, Contractor Collectives. Uh, there's a lot of uh, barriers and uh, disparities within our community, and what we need to do is come up with a strategy to uh, address those barriers, whereas there's an equity or an inclusion plan to involve the local contractors. So it's important that people from my environment, uh, District 10, born and raised, to see us out there working, and that'll motivate them to say, hey, I can be a plumber, I can be a painter, I can do this. So we need to address hiring uh, local contractors when this, when this uh, measure is passed. Thank you. And thank you much for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Will Carney. I'm a small local um, contractor. We definitely need this uh, opportunity, this park built, so we can help these youth, so we can train some of the people for some of the work in the future. Uh, we definitely need it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill Carney. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Budget and Finance Committee. Uh, my name is Josue. I work for the general contractor Swinerton Builders over at the 900 Enos project. I took the day off so I could um, voice my support for the um, current legislative piece that's being uh, discussed. Um, I wanted to give a little bit of a background on how I got here though, really quickly. Um, I did grow up in the Bayview area and uh, I lived the life of, uh, well, the things that we don't want our youth to be living, but I managed to get out of it by the, by the blood of Lord Jesus Christ, and I decided that I wanted to give a little bit back to the neighborhood, and when I heard about this opportunity, I uh, really put time into it and really dedicated myself, and I became diligent, and so now I'm working on the project, and I'd like for it to be finished so that the neighborhood can benefit from it, and I thank you all for your diligence in making sure that the, the entire process is transparent and we could receive the funds we need to complete this project finally for the families and the community. Thank you all. And thank you much for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good morning, supervisors. My name is Kurt Grimes, and I'm here to ask you to make a connection. I'm asking you to make a connection to equity. As you have just seen and you've just heard, people from the community are putting put to work as a result of this project. There are businesses that are coming up as a result of this project. There are youth that are definitely benefiting from the result of this project. This is something that does work. If you're looking for transparency, you should ask for it. Supervisor Chan, I do appreciate you asking questions, but we should proceed as normal with this project. I strongly feel that as a resident and a homeowner in this, in this community that we are definitely in the right to move forward. Once again, make a connection. Thank you. Thank you much, Kirk Rice. Next speaker, please. I want to use the screen. Um. SFGov TV. Thank you.
Thank you, Gloria Berry here. Um, I definitely was in support of this project. Do whatever you gotta do to make sure there is appropriate funding going to the right places, to the right people. Just make that happen and make this program happen. I'm here because personally, my grandson was a participant in the Splash and Swim program. I'm gonna show you video of him. And again, in the spirit of reparations, I first took my grandson to a park in Visitation Valley where we were harmed by the staff. We weren't treated good. My grandson left very discouraged. But when he went to this program at MLK Park, he got nothing but love, treated well, and to see those little black girls and boys swimming and achieve to the different stations and be able to swim is beautiful. And we gotta pay now or we pay later. Speaker Sam has left. Thank you, Gloria Berry, for addressing this committee. If there are any more uh, speakers in the gallery uh, joining us today. Madam Chair, that concludes our queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. I would like to first um, duplicate the file uh, of item number 11 um, and to amend the, the original and the duplicate file, files accordingly with one, the original to be to accept and expand grant of these um, San Francisco Foundation of the 50 million and then to duplicate a file to be the remaining balance or the balance of the language for the uh, behest, behest payment waiver. Uh, with that, let's roll call for that first motion first. Oh, or is there a problem? Sorry. Chair Chan, did you also want to make the amendment that just specified the six months? The limit? six months. Well, I can do that in one motion. Okay, so then with that, and then would be the duplicate file that has to be, has the pave, pavement waiver to also be amended with the language that was read out loud by Rec and Park Departments on the page four, line 16, to indicate the six months period for this uh, behested payment waiver. And with that emotion, please roll, for, for roll call. Yes, okay, so <clears throat> as a summary, uh, the resolution in item 11, is to be duplicated. The original file is to be amended to only contain the accept and expend language. The duplicated file will then contain the language for the, uh, be, um, for the behested payments and that the duplicated file uh, be amended to include the six month language. Okay, and on that motion, Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Uh, we have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman and Member Safai excused. The motion passes, and with that, uh, to move forward with item 11, both the original file as amended, as well as the duplicated file as amended, as well as item 12, 13, and 14 to full board with recommendation, please, and roll call. And on that motion, to forward the original resolution in item 11 and its duplicated file both as amended and also uh, the items in 12, 13, and 14 to the full board with a positive recommendation. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have two ayes with Vice Chair Mandelman and Member Safai excused. 
and the motion passes. And uh, Mr. Clerk, do we have any other business before us today? Uh, Madam Chair, that concludes our business. Thank you. The meeting is adjourned.